Good morning, everyone. All right, very special room this morning. Um, we're going to get Dr. Jim up here before we delay any longer. Jim, can you hear us okay? Yeah, yeah, no, I can hear you, George. Sorry about that. Excellent. Yeah. No, hey, no, no, no worries. No worries. Um, you can teach an old dog new tricks, as we just, um, <laughs> as we just evidenced. Just for, for those of you that don't know, uh, listen, just a few months ago, uh, I didn't know how to work these damn spaces, and we've had other guests, Jim, so don't worry. That, that it's, it's been a learning experience for all of us. We're very grateful to have you uh, in the room this morning. For those of you that don't know him, uh, Dr. Jim, I, I've had the privilege of knowing him for going on three decades, was uh, a long-standing, renowned strategist and economist at uh, CLSA in Asia. He's uh, an expert uh, on markets and the economy, comes from the Austrian school, lived in Asia for a very long time. So for all of you that have China questions, uh, have, have at it. Uh, Jim is particularly well-versed to speak on uh, China and Asian markets. And we're not going to let him get away without some words about what it's like to be in the world of horse racing and owning horses. So, uh, Jim, without further ado, I want to give you the floor. Just be yourself. You've got a lot of friends and smart cookies in the room. I see Michael Green is here. John Roke is here. Three Aces is here. Michael Howell is here. I can go on and on. I'm just rattling off names from the top of the page. So, Looking forward to a really interesting hour. So without further ado, Jim, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, George. Um, and thanks, everyone, for uh, tuning in on a Sunday. Um, and, of course, uh, just in case you're wondering uh, about the time difference in terms of Asia and uh, the United States, I'm in North Berwick in Scotland, um, even though we're still obviously covering Asia and our businesses about Asia uh, at the moment. I'm in in the UK, which is just as well, given the chaos with COVID in Hong Kong these days. Um, what I was uh, really trying to, uh, I spoke to George earlier to, to get an idea of what he wanted me to talk about. But I mean, I, I think there's a number of things and, and certainly there's uh, plenty of stuff to say about Asia and the way that it's coping with COVID and its uh, long-term prospects. But Really, what I think I should start talking about is inflation um, and where we stand on that. Jim, uh, Jim, yeah. Jim, just in case you didn't see it, to make it easier for you, I did tweet out a few pages from the uh, PDF you sent me. So um, if you want to reference the PDF pages three, four, five, and six, I believe are on my, uh, uh, on my, on my, on my Twitter. So you can okay. speak to that if you wish. Oh, no, that's that's great, George. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'll just pull that up myself and uh, have a look and see which ones that went out. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, very good. Right, no, I'll do that. Um, but I want to start maybe just uh, not talking about the, the, the stuff that went out, the, the various pages, but just about inflation generally, because, um, you know, everybody is talking about inflation these days and... Uh, what they really mean, of course, is consumer price inflation. They're not talking about real inflation because we've had inflation for 50 years, ever since 1971, uh, when, of course, we went off the gold standard, or the gold exchange standard. Uh, that gold window was closed and we handed policy over to economists, uh, which I would always argue is an exceptionally bad idea. Uh, given how little, and especially how little, 
uh, academic economists know about the real world. And I can assure you they know very, very little, uh, given the, the, my experience in, in working in the real world and working in Asia, uh, and then reading economists and then speaking to academic economists, both in Scotland, America and elsewhere. Um, the problem with that is, of course, that uh, they, they, they make mistakes, but they never admit them. Well, of course, we started making mistakes in 1971 uh, as monetary policy and effectively money uh, supply growth ramped up. Uh, but uh, since the 1970s and 1980s, when we had an experience of inflation, everybody's kind of forgotten uh, that th this was and continues to be an ongoing mistake. And instead, uh, they focused on consumer prices. And I know the reason for that, and I know that uh, we can talk about the equation of exchange, MV is equal to PQ, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they'll point out that uh, inflation hasn't existed for uh, most of the last 30 years in particular. But that's just rubbish. I mean, it has existed, but it hasn't been in consumer prices. It's mostly been in asset prices. And I think all of us probably on this call have a good idea about that. Um, if you looked back over the, the period to 1971, what you would find is that um, asset prices have gone up 9% a year on average. Now, that's uh, one and a half percentage points more than the inflation rate and consumer prices that everybody is so exercised with in the United States today. But uh, we, we ignore asset price inflation or the Fed ignores asset price inflation and central banks do because they like that kind of inflation. It keeps everybody happy that's in their small universe, uh, in their ambit. But it, it's when it moves over to consumer prices, we get problems. And that's what we've got just now. But why have we got these problems just now? Why haven't they happened uh, over the course of the last 30 years? Well, there's various answers to that question. But the, the real answer to why it's happened now is the pandemic and the response of governments to the pandemic. And this is something we try to write about to our clients in uh, uh, the early part of 2020, that the, the response to the pandemic from governments was going to be critical as to whether or not we went back to a, a 1970s, 80s style inflation, uh, or whether we avoided that. And of course, what happened was that governments just fell completely into the trap Instead of supporting the supply side of the economy, which would have been to, uh, to try and keep the capital structure in place, to support companies that had been locked down because of COVID restrictions, to, to support industries that couldn't operate particularly much anymore, airlines, hotels, uh, cruise lines, etc., etc., trying to keep them uh, in business. Instead, of course, what happened was that governments gave money to individuals, they gave money to households, they stimulated demand. And the, the way we've tried to explain that to our clients is that it was like giving them a, a pint tumbler full of water and saying to them, pour that into this half pint tumbler, tumbler but don't spill anything. And of course, that's impossible. So what has happened is that the, the demand water has spilled out into the global economy uh, and into the demand for goods and specifically goods rather than services because services were the things that were cut off by the pandemic. The result of that is a huge change in uh, relative prices. 
uh, in the system. And one of the charts that uh, I think George sent out is the, the world ex-ante pandemic to the world ex-post, which is a uh, just a chart of um, a flow chart of what we think is is going on here. Uh, so we, we had existing conditions in the world ex-ante, uh, which seemed to be relatively settled. Then we had the recognition of the pandemic and then the government responses, lockdowns, travel restrictions, huge fiscal injections. And that changed all of the circumstances. Now, what I'm uh, mentioning here is uh, the, the kind of analysis that's associated with an economist called George Shackle. These changed circumstances lead to changed behaviours uh, in both uh, households and in uh, businesses, and specifically the, the changed prices. And every price, according to Shackle, is involved in all prices. And all prices are involved in every price. In other words, once you start shifting prices and once you start getting relative price shifts, you've absolutely no idea where the economy is going and what the impact of those shifts will be until we reach some kind of market balance again. Now, if the government keeps um, intervening and central banks keep intervening, you don't get to that balance and you probably get to an explosive solution. And I think that's kind of where we're at just now. So um, what we've uh, really kind of talked about um, is, uh, to our client base is that the world ex-ante is gone and the world ex-post the pandemic is still quarters, if not years away. And in the meantime, we've got knee-jerk reactions from governments that just make things worse. This is one of the, the charts, I think, that uh, George sent out. And we're getting now the, the 1970s and 1980s back uh, in terms of the, uh, the inflation effects in consumer prices. But I think that those are very little understood by today's, um, if you like, uh, market participants. Partly because, of course, most of them weren't around the 19, in the 1970s and 1980s. I was at university uh, in the 1970s. I, I studied economics, obviously, um, but also for the first two years, accountancy. Um, and during the, the second year of my accountancy degree, or my accountancy uh, studies, I was given, or we, we, we had lessons uh, and classes in inflation accounting. And I bet you, if you said that to most people in the accountancy profession uh, and the markets under the age of 50, they wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about. But in the 1970s, inflation accounting was the big thing. Books were written about it and uh, uh, questions were asked about how do you account for inflation in company accounts? How do you change the company accounts that we know so well every year to ad adapt for inflation and for what inflation has done to the, uh, the business costs and the investment decisions? And we've all forgotten that. But the problem is that inflation like we have today changes business behaviour and it changes it quite radically because it increases uncertainty. And with that uncertainty increase, companies don't know whether they're making a profit from their business. And they don't know whether or not the depreciation on their assets that they're accounting for every year is correct because those assets might cost an awful lot more by the time they come to the, the end of the depreciation process and try to, to reinvest. And this is one of the things that I think is happening just now, that um, we've got uncertainty 
we're going to get the investment response to that uncertainty, which is a lot less spending. And one of the strategy calls that we've had this year is to go short on industrial commodities, isn't working so far, to go long in volatility, and that's hardly working so far either. But I think that's exactly the, the, the kind of um, strategy positioning that people should have just now, because the inflation is going to cause major disruptions. And with those ma major disruptions, uh, we're going to get a recession. And actually, that's the solution to the inflation, because there's nothing that governments and central banks can do about it. Um, I don't know whether George sent out the, the, the piece that we, we talked about, um, or maybe it wasn't sent over to him, about the central bank response to, uh, to, to the inflation just now, because there are very conflicting signals out there uh, from what the Fed is saying. People are now talking about, well, they were originally talking about three or four Fed raises this year. Now they're talking about five to nine over the course of the next two years. Isn't this... Doesn't this strike people as being close to idiotic? That if you really have an inflation problem, A, you wouldn't be buying any uh, mortgage-backed securities or government debt at the moment, but they continue to uh, expand their balance sheet and continue to do quantitative easing. Uh, and they're going to do that up until March when they do the first rate increase, which is going to be 25 basis points. Well, if you think you're going to have between five and nine rate increases, why not do 125 next month? And then do another 100 the, the, the month or the six weeks after? Because that might actually start to address the inflation problem. And it would actually send a very clear message to markets and to everybody that we were really serious about this. But we know that the Fed's not going to do that. And we should also know why the Fed's not going to do that. Because the Fed over the course of the last 30 years, along with other central banks, has managed to build up so many zombie companies uh, in the investment universe that they know that they can't raise interest rates and they can't raise them anything like the amounts that people are talking about or those companies will start falling over. And this is, again, something that we've written about and talked about to our client base over the course of the last few years before the pandemic uh, in a couple of pieces, one called The Walking Dead, obviously zombie companies, another one called American Flu, because this has been, uh, instead of the China flu, imposed on us by, I'm afraid, the United States in the guise of the Federal Reserve. But if you go back to 1990, what you would look at, according to the BIS, is an advanced economy universe of listed companies that had zero zombie companies, as defined by the BIS, and I think probably most of us know the definition, which is uh, companies that can't uh, repay their interest on debt from their yearly earnings. And they have to be in that uh, position for three years in a row before they're classified as zombies. So it's not as if it's just one year where companies have a hard time. So we've gone from zero in 1990 15% of companies listed in advanced economies that are classified as zombies by 2018. Obviously, we can't uh, get to 2019 yet because that's three years ago. We need to uh, have the data. Um, but, you know, this is a big problem. 15% of the universe is zombie. 
So interest rate rises kill the zombies. And if that's the case, then we're in for the mother of all recessions if interest rates, uh, rates rise in anything like the form that people are talking about just now. So our view is that the, the, the Fed will do one interest rate increase in March. That seems inevitable, and that will be the last one. Because by that time, everything will be falling apart very quickly, both in markets and in terms of the business environment. And that's already the case where uh, the business environment is um, going to be negative on the investment side. And of course, with real earnings now falling in the United States, very negative on the consumer side. Then you add in tightening in monetary policy and tightening in fiscal policy, and the outlook is pretty well awful. And that's exactly what the bond market's telling us just now. Because instead of being really worried about nine interest rate rises, uh, the two-year, 10-year Treasury spread is at the lowest spread uh, in the last three, four years. Almost the lowest, I think, to the last decade, if you uh, take out uh, 2020. And that's really telling us what the bond market's worried about. It's worried about growth and it's worried about uh, the recession that's coming. It's not worried about inflation. So let me stop there, uh, George, and uh, open it for questions. And yeah, leave so, so, it up to people to talk about Asia if they, they want me to speak <laughs> about China. Yeah, so, so, so Jim, on that cheerful note, um, where do I begin? So let's start with um, what the implications of this are for financial markets. What you're saying basically is, Sounds like the Fed's between a rock and a hard place. Seems to me that the markets have the best of all worlds, lowest interest rates in a million years, five thousand years, profit margins at decade highs, massive participation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so, what you're saying, I, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, as is usually the case in this point in the cycle, rates go up until something breaks. Are you saying basically they're going to break a lot sooner than people are anticipating? Yeah, I, I think it will break very, very quickly, George, because it was incredibly fragile to begin with. And I can give you a, a, a very good example of that. When you, you think back to um, the, the, the idea of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, here we were pre-pandemic with uh, relatively low consumer prices, but a supply system that was working pretty well, very effectively, um, despite the fact that in 2017, 18, 19, we actually had some three years of pretty decent growth in the United States, uh, in Europe, more than 2%, uh, two, two, uh, between 2 and 2.5. Um, the global economy doing reasonably well. Where were all the supply problems? Where was all the, the freight problems? Why couldn't uh, or why didn't uh, Long Beach and the, the West Coast ports in the United States freeze up in 2019 uh, when we had very strong growth, better growth actually than we've got just now? Well, of course, the, the answer to that is that it didn't freeze up because all of the demand wasn't heading towards uh, goods. And that's what's happened in the course of the, the, the last two years with the response to COVID. The, the demand has been pushed into very specific areas. It's all about goods because services, to a large extent across the world, don't exist. Think about it in terms of Hong Kong uh, and the airport there. Uh, two years, three years ago, 
6,000 flights in January 2019 into Hong Kong, uh, in 2022, 130. That, that's the kind of services reduction that we've had in the global economy. That's an extreme event, but it's still uh, telling you something. And what that really is saying is that we, we had a, a very um, fragile uh, but working global economy in 2019. And all it's taken is two years of demand disruption and demand going into the wrong areas to make it fall apart. And now we've got supply constraints, supply problems, distribution problems, freight costs rising, etc., etc. That then leads to the next price, the next price, the next price changing. But it's all about fragility. And that's, I think, what we don't understand as economists and we don't understand as financial market players, that the economy and the markets are incredibly fragile at all times. And if you induce a big relative price shift, a big change in the system, then the effects of that and the negative effects of that on investment spending, um, behavioural changes, etc., etc., will come through very quickly, just like the supply disruptions that we've had in the last two years or the last year. Right. So when you look, I mean, clearly when you look at recommendations, you're a bit uh, skeptical, I think, of the mainstream markets. No, I mean, you don't particularly care for equity markets. I've characterized equity markets as offering return-free risk. Um, yeah. Bond markets, bond markets, you know, given where the yields are, also look pretty horrendous. So maybe just go down a little bit further. You were talking about favoring <clears throat> being long of volatility. And just for the for, for the average uh, uh, listener in the room, what should they be doing with their portfolio? I recall in years past, many moons ago when we were young men, you were correctly bullish on gold at the right time. I uh, seem to recall reading one of your more recent pieces. You kind of like crypto. So what would, you, what, what would you tell the average investor to do, Jim? Bear in mind that I like gold and I like crypto, but for a very specific reason, that's because I don't like central banks. Um, and I don't think uh, either crypto or gold like central banks very much either. So I tend to be long anything that's, uh, that, that's short central banks. But in, in uh, terms of the, uh, the, the sensible answer to, to that sensible question, um, Actually, you know, the funny thing, George, I, I was looking at my, my two biggest uh, stock holdings and both of them have gone up in the last three months. I, I must be some uh, stock uh, analyst as well. Uh, this might come as a bit of a surprise to you, given my uh, other track records with stock recommendations. But uh, if, you, if you own electric companies and tobacco companies, I can assure you they're doing pretty well. Um, and I think maybe more of that is going to be required for people's portfolios. Uh, I think they used to be called utilities. And uh... yeah, yeah, I had a heart attack for a second, Jim, because when when you hear the word electric, many people nowadays think electric vehicles. I'm like, oh no, he, he, no. surely he hasn't had drunken the Kool Aid in his Avgetti Tesla. All right, so, no, no, no. so so without getting into specific names, you're basically saying more defensive types of companies with strong balance sheets and good cash flow. Is that what you're interested in? Absolutely, uh, and of course. I am of that age, George, that I do like dividends, even though in Scotland, uh, living in Scotland now, they're going to take 40% of that off me. But uh, um, I do like dividends. So, that, yeah, these are companies that are real companies that with real cash flow and um, real businesses. 
And so, okay, so this is, this is, this is getting to a nice rhythm here. Let's, let's go a little further. And so what do you say about those who are buying companies on 30 times revenues with infinite PEs that are making losses, um, you know, the really speculative part of the market? Um, I mean, for me, I've been pretty outspoken about you want to run, not walk as fast as possible away from those things. But do you think that, if, I mean, if you, I suspect you, you, you see interest rates coming down eventually. Uh, do you think it doesn't matter for these companies? They're totally stuffed because of their poor balance sheets and high valuations. Or what would you do with the more speculative stocks in the market right now? Yeah, I, I, I'm afraid I'd be with you, George. I might be running even faster than you and hopefully faster than some of my horses. Um, <laughs> because uh, the, 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 that, to my mind, is where you don't want to be. I, I just see that whole universe as being, let's say, 1999-2000 tech stocks. And a lot of them are actually tech stocks, I suppose. But I, I think we're right back at that uh, point. And as I say, the, the, the whole uh, issue here is about very uh, specific changes, but it can be very small changes in both behaviour uh, and in the, um, the ability to understand whether an investment makes any money or not. Now, I know we've been in a position where people don't care about money uh, being made by companies, but I think in these circumstances, they're going to go right back to that. Uh, and if the, the stocks that uh, have been leading the way uh, in stock markets are ones that uh, don't have earnings, don't have uh, real businesses, uh, then I think they're by far the most likely to get uh, taken out and shot in this environment. I mean, and Jim, so you and I have been old enough, we've, we've seen this movie before. Isn't this, I think, Jeremy Grant thinks, people with gray hair generally think, that this really is far, far worse than, say, 2000. Would you concur with that or disagree with that? Uh, well, look, uh, I, I would defer to you and I would defer to Jeremy. That, that, that's for certain because you guys are, are much more into the stock universe than I am. But it looks that way to me. And everything I, I, I've seen and read from people over the course of the last uh, five, ten years about why you should ignore fundamentals it's it's a game that plays out every so often. And when, um, you know, the, the emperor's uh, coming out of the water and he doesn't have any clothes on, which is exactly what these guys are like, then eventually people notice. Right. And I think that's where we are. So, Jeremy, uh, so, 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 Dr. Jim, could you just maybe for those who don't have your years of experience, just speak to maybe sort of, Austrian school economics for dummies. Um, just, I mean, because you do have an Austrian this sort of approach to things, but speak to the way, you know, it seems to me we're running out of resources. Again, you and I were joking on the phone earlier. I love paraphrasing that line from uh, Jeremy Irons and Margin Call. Um, yeah. Is, you, know, you, know, you know, oh, so, 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 Dr. Jim, I understand you're the analyst who's done the work here. Um, please explain to me why with inflation, uh, you know, pushing on 8%, unemployment below 4%, that the Fed is still being stimulative. Pretend I'm a small child or a golden retriever. Um, it's all a sort of cute way of trying to say, hey, Jim, if you're an Austrian guy, which you are, I mean, I have another Austrian friend. And he's been saying for months he was looking for a slowdown stroke recession just because we're running out of resources where the unemployment rate is low as it is and, and all these other constraints given given the supply chain breakdown. So maybe just sort of recalibrate your view, just maybe speak for a minute on, on the Austrian school and why that informs your view of the world economy as it does. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't disagree at all in the sense of it looks as if we're running out of resources, as uh, your friend would maybe say. But I'm not quite sure which resources we're running out of um, that, that's making them so worried. I, I, uh, I, I think he was referring to labour, actually. Yeah, that, that's, what, uh, that's what I suspected he might be um, looking at. And yet, you know, I, I look at the, the, the labour market in the United States and I look at the 3.X percent, I don't know what it is, uh, unemployment rate. But, you know, the, the participation rate in the United States is very close to 30-year lows. Um, the, 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 a lot of people didn't come back from the uh, from the, the lockdowns and the pandemic. Uh, the, 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 if you look at participation, uh, the, there is actually no labour problem in the United States. What there is, of course, is a total skills mismatch. And this is one of the things, and, and let me, I'll, I'll go on to Austrian in a second, but I think one of the things that uh, we, we don't realise has been going on for much of the last 30 years is the, the move towards the modern monetary theory approach to economics, which um, the, 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 the MMT people would claim that uh, it just hasn't been done right so far, but their whole approach to, to economics is that the, the government owns the printing press, therefore um, all we need to do is print more money uh, to get rid of unemployment, to get rid of poverty, to get rid of this, to get rid of that, to get rid of the next time thing, mostly uh, as far as I can see with governments to, to make more bombs and to uh, have a bigger military and a bigger police force, especially in Canada these days. Um, that seems to be to what governments really put their money to, to use on. But the point here is that you can create all that money, you can create all that demand, but what you can't do is change the, um, the skills structure of the economy or the capital structure of the economy quickly or easily. So you, you can have full employment when you have 10% unemployment. And what I mean by that is that if you're piling demand into, let's say, the construction industry in America, which is what Joe Biden wants to do, if you're piling money into the construction in in industry in America, let's hope you've got lots of joiners just sitting there doing nothing, lots of electricians sitting there doing nothing, lots of brickies sitting there doing nothing, and uh, labourers sitting there doing nothing, because if you're actually expecting nurses or teachers or economists, God forbid, to go out there and build your highways, you're in deep trouble. And this, I think, is what an awful lot of people don't understand, that the economy is complex. Uh, the system is complex. And that's actually what Austrian economics tries to teach uh, people. Um, the, the, the Austrians, uh, I, I'm not Austrian, obviously, I might sound sometimes slightly Germanic, but I'm actually just Scottish. But the, the great thing about the Austrians was their ability to turn around and say, we don't know where this takes us. We don't know how this works. We don't uh, really understand. We try to, to look through policy responses, to, to look through what's happening with markets and to look through what's happening with the most important thing of all, price signals. And the interest rate is a price signal. We try to look through these things, but actually we've got an awful lot of uncertainty about where things are going to go. The, 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 the biggest flaw with economics and uh, with, with governments that take 
the recommendations of economists on board over the course of the last 30 years is the degree of certainty that these people have in themselves. And you can see it in the central bank. You can see it in the Fed in particular. Um, you can see it in central banks all over the world. Uh, you, personally, I think you've got buffoons all over the place, like uh, Bailey and the Bank of England, uh, who thinks that uh, people shouldn't be that uh, worried about wage increases this year because, well, he makes half a million a year, so why would you worry about wage increases? Um, but uh, the, the, the problem with them is that they uh, assume that they're right on everything and their models are right on everything. But the fact is that they're wrong and the models are wrong because the system is complex and they can't handle complexity. So um, what we've got is a, a, a system where, um, as I say, I think people, when people ask me, is the, is the Fed ahead of the curve? Well, obviously, we, we don't believe that the, the Fed's ahead of the curve at the moment. But is it behind the curve? Well, you know, the problem is with the system set up the way it is just now and the ability of uh, companies to exist that don't make any money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We don't know where the curve is, George. Right. And the, 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 these guys are—I uh, I, I can't use the kinds of words that I would actually prefer to use—but let's say they're, they're uh, in an uncomfortable position. If they were uh, sitting in the lavatory with their trousers on, because they don't know what their next move is going to bring. And I think at last they're beginning to realise that they're not in control anymore. And yeah. the, the response to the pandemic did that. So one thing that we've got to thank the pandemic for, I think, is that it's exposed, A, the lie that central banks are independent, because the only reason they're going to raise interest rates is to try and win Joe Biden a, a majority in November, which I think is an impossibility, by the way. But um, that, that, that they're really now just totally worried about what they're going to have to uh, look at as the, the custodians of economic policy. Um, they, they're going to have zombie companies falling over if they do too much, uh, and they're going to have inflation rampant for another year, consumer price inflation, um, if they don't do enough. So uh, they, they're really caught. That's great. That's, 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 that's fantastic, Jim. Okay, let's turn to the audience just to reset. Uh, we've got Dr. Jim Walker speaking on world markets, the Austrian view. We're going to get to horse racing, Jim. We're not going to let you off until we speak about horses. Uh, let's take a few uh, questions here. So in order, we're going to do the capitalist, Danny, and then Rustin Boy. So capitalist, good to see you. Good morning. Uh, what, what, how are you doing? What do you got for Jim? I just have a quick question. So I'm generally short high-flying tech companies that can't live up to their valuations. But what worries me the most is what drives those things into hyperdrive to the top side, not necessarily whether or not they, I have the valuation work correct. I, I just wonder how you think about um, kind of where we are in monetary policy and what the next steps would be should we step closer to kind of Weimar Republic range. How to think so, about that? Yeah, I, I look, Jim. Let me have a shot at that. I mean, if you want, you can have, welcome. Have a go at it. I, I would just say that. I mean, there's two things going on here. Well, it's not just a question of how much money they're putting in the system, but it's also a question of where animal spirits. And as uh, Helene Meisler, um, who was who was trained at the knee of Justin Mamis, oft wants to say, um, sentiment follows price. 
these are all momentum idiots. And we, we know from history that once a bubble breaks, it's pretty hard to reinflate the bubble. So my sense of those things is, yeah, I mean, let's assume that Jim's right and things break and rates go down. I don't, that's going to be accompanied, I believe, by a serious reduction in risk appetite. And so I, I, I think you get to a situation where nothing's going to help help those stocks. So I, I, I mean, I mean, I remain resolutely negative of those companies. Once the market breaks, you want to say to me, well, hey, George, you know, NASDAQ's been cut in half. Could they then go up? Yeah, we'll drive off that bridge when we come to it. But for right here, right now, to me, this is it's, it's a bit of muscle memory pattern recognition. I've been through enough crashes. 87, Japan, 1999, 2008. Uh, also, you've seen the analogs posted repeatedly on Twitter. I put it up there a number of times. We're tracing out the uh, NASDAQ crash perfectly in, in 2000. So I, I would just don't get caught up on every day-to-day and week-to-week gyration. Life is not linear. But mm-hmm. I don't think we're anywhere close to this decline being over. Jim, do you yeah, want to say anything? Or do you want even- Sorry. I guess I'm not even arguing yeah. that. I, I guess what I'm what I'm. What, trying you, what to, do you ask? What's the question then? Well, <laughs> if I look at a lot of these large um, funds and I look at their holdings, they're making an implicit bet. Now I don't think they're stupid. They're making a bet. Now they may be wrong, right? But they're making a bet that essentially the Federal Reserve will never let the market go down. And it will continue to pump regardless of what the, what the effect will be on mom and pop. Otherwise, you can't kind of you kind of can't explain Kotu or Tiger or any of the rest of their portfolios. And and they could be wrong on that bet. But I just what I want to make sure is what am I looking? You know, where are we now? And what would I be looking for if if that turn is being made? Okay, so yeah, so, yeah. so, so Jim, I'll yield to you in a second. Let me just address the first, one part of that. You maybe implicitly they're making that bet, but I don't think that's explicitly what they're doing. I think they're just momentum investors on steroids, blissfully ignorant and unaware of the macro bets they've been making. Maybe now they finally realize what's going on and they're trapped. So I don't really give them any credit for that bet. I just think they backed into an enormous momentum trade and let the chips fall where they may. So, Jim, did you want to answer as, as to when? Because I also think when the throws of regime change, and my, my view is rates are going to go up considerably, but let's say I'm wrong. Let's say Jim is more right. The reason they're not going to go up more considerably is because the whole thing just breaks and all it comes crashing down. So either way, I, I believe equities are totally stuffed. I mean, Jim, what, Jim, I, I yield to you. No, I, I, well, yeah, I, I think it's a, actually I think it's a really good question because the, the, there's a I think a very interesting uh, change that has taken place. Uh, and it's, uh, I kind of love it, but uh, over the course of the, the, the last year and a half, and I, I completely agree that, uh, and have been on the wrong side of calls uh, through the, the course of the last 10 years because I didn't think they could be that stupid, but the, the, the Federal Reserve and other central banks just continually supported markets. They, they, they wouldn't do anything that undermined markets. Any sniff of a problem and they would change their policies. They would, they might not, might not even tell us they were changing their policies. They just quantitative ease uh, without uh, announcing it. I can't remember what the, the, the that thing was in the repo market uh, a few years ago when they just piled in uh, and expanded money supply to to, to uh, address a repo market problem. Um, so you, you know you, you you would be right in being fearful about the this time being the same, where 
the Federal Reserve is going to come to the rescue of the markets, just pile in there. For, except for one, I think, very important fact, politics. This is the point where the Federal Reserve and the government are not on the same side. When I say the government, the executive in the United States are not on the same side. They've been on exactly the same side since 2008, no doubt about that. Um, they're on opposite sides at the moment. For Biden, getting inflation down before November is absolutely first priority, totally imperative. If that means that the stock market goes down 50%, Biden doesn't care because he cannot get elected with 7% inflation. And that's where they're headed. They'll, they'll probably have that anyway, but that's that's by the way. So you, you've so, now got a very different uh, scenario where uh, the markets are not in control. Uh, they always thought they were. And they thought that any uh, shout uh, to the Fed that, oh, look, uh, we, we need more money, uh, the Fed would just come running. This time it can't. So I, I operate in D.C., and... Um... And I, I think you're right, but I would say one one little nuance that, that a lot of people outside the city don't pick up on is that um, as much as uh, the executive branch is aligned with the midterm elections, um, it's actually not the focus of the executive branch at a certain level. Their focus is actually their election. So it is possible, yeah. though I don't have any intelligence to suggest that you know this is definitely happening, but it is possible that you have a president who's given up on the midterms and uh -huh. is willing to have the market go down and is willing to be hawkish at the Fed in order to try to save his legacy and not be called Jimmy Carter like he was on TV all day today. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that. that the, the, the people inside the White House that run the Domestic Policy Council, they're focused on his election more so than they are anything that Schumer's got going on. That's very interesting. Very, very interesting. That's great. So, Jim, let me ask a follow-up question. To what extent... Um... If these policies aren't, and again, I'm, I'm, I only like to ask questions I think I know the answer to, but so it's a leading, a leading question. But playing this into politics and inflation, speak to perhaps the um, income inequality issue and the role which the Fed's policy has played in the decades of inflation that we've seen. And that how breaking inflation, going into politics, of course, but to what extent has the Fed also been implicitly or explicitly responsible for some of the income inequality that we have? Is that for me, George? Yes, yes. Yeah, no. Well, it's, it's absolutely to blame for the inequality in the United States. The, the, the thing that I've consistently called um, Fed policy since... 2008, and it's not just Fed, it's every other central bank in advanced economies, not in emerging markets, by the way, but in advanced economies. It's pure institutionalised theft. This is the, the, the we, we now live in the, the biggest kleptocracy um, that's ever existed, where ordinary people who are on fixed incomes, uh, who are older, uh, who have saved their working lives, who believe in saving rather than uh, getting into huge amounts of debt and just spending and spending spending have been raped by central banks and by zero interest rate policies. Uh, all on the uh, basis that these zero interest rate policies were required 
to get us out of trouble, to get us out of recession. And what have they delivered? Well, they've delivered what I mentioned to you earlier. They've delivered zombies. They've delivered high stock markets. Yes, there's no doubt about that. But who owns stock markets now? Everybody actually does own stock markets. They don't realise it because it's in their pension funds and they don't see it on a daily basis, etc., etc. But that's something that's way in the future for most people. Of course, the, the, the main people who own uh, stock markets are, are actually very wealthy people like us. Um, so it's been a great ride for us. Um, and I'm not complaining in that sense. But we, we're going to have to pay the piper. There's going to be wealth taxes and this is what we've argued with our clients uh, for, for years now, that uh, there will come a backlash, and I think the backlash is on us. But the, 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 the inequality is absolutely down to the Federal Reserve. Um, the, the other thing that I think uh, we, we, we uh, need to bear in mind about these policies is, of course, that uh, they're incredibly damaging for, for capitalism because... As I said earlier, the price signals are unbelievably important in economies. Um, and once you get, get them out of whack, you, you get problems in the supply chain, etc., etc. But the, the, the biggest price in the, any economy, the whole economy, is the interest rate. And with that, you get terrible misallocation of capital. And that's what an awful lot of the, the companies that... Uh, we were just discussing about the... Wait, 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 Jim, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You mean we don't need another social media company developing an app on 50 times sales? Like, you don't think that's important? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe it will be someday, uh, but no, you, you know the answer. Jim, I'm pulling your leg, and you know what, you know what, actually, I don't want to, I want to take more questions in the audience, but this is actually a good rabbit hole to go down just briefly. And we'll get into more questions on China later, I'm sure. But I've been reading lately. Maybe you can speak to this. You look at the change in Chinese policy and they're trying to direct future investment to means of production. And I, I was reading a very interesting paper on this. And it was explaining how, you know, in the, in the, in the West, in the States, let's say, where companies are investing in more video games or apps or this or that, which in terms of economic growth, I don't know, strikes me that... Chinese adopted a much different attitude to where, where the types of technological investment they want. And so I don't know if you want to just speak a little bit about maybe some good entree to the direction the Chinese are going in and, and compare and contrast that to the, the direction the West is going in, if, if you feel so. Important. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it's important to, to uh, bring China into this story because, you know, people have said to me, and, and we were very, very skeptical about China for many Years and, and when you and I were talking uh, as client and uh, and, and economist in a uh, sell side firm, you, you probably remember that I tended to be much more on the negative side about China than, than many other economists, many other Western uh, analysts. That's for sure. But over the course of the last seven years, I, I've become much more constructive about China, not because of lots of things that. China's doing right, or because China's the greatest place in the world, etc., etc. It's certainly not that. Um, but they, they have changed direction in terms of their economic policy making. If you went back to uh, the early 2000s and right up to 2000, effectively 12, 13, and you looked at the real lending rate in China. Now, as an Austrian, we define the real lending rate as 
the, the, the lending rate deflated by the nominal GDP growth rate, not by consumer prices. Consumer prices actually don't matter for very many things except for people uh, being unhappy about their, their real incomes falling. But what really matters is the lending rate in economies. And if the lending rate is much, much lower than, or, yeah, much lower than the nominal GDP growth rate, you're enticing companies to invest and enticing companies to invest in all sorts of bad things. It's called uh, misallocation of capital uh, or malinvestment. And the lower that, the more negative that real lending is, rate is, the more malinvestment you get. Now, China, by 2013, had 30% overcapacity in the steel industry, 30% overcapacity in chemicals, 30% overcapacity in cement. It was an absolute nightmare in terms of uh, a working economy and a working system. Now, whether it was Xi Jinping or his advisors, I don't know. Um, but from about 2013 onwards, the Chinese really started changing the system. They started liberalising interest rates. They allowed interest rates to rise. Uh, they, they encouraged banks to lend not to their pals in the state-owned enterprises and the local governments, but to everybody. And of course, the nominal GDP growth rate also came down. So what you have now is that the real lending rate in China, which is actually still slightly negative, but it's not anywhere near as negative as it was, is now encouraging companies to invest in projects and invest in uh, businesses that actually make money. The West has gone in exactly the opposite direction. You've got zero interest rates, if uh, people can borrow close to those zero interest rates, not everybody can, of course, uh, but if those that can, and a lot of zombie companies do because banks don't want to uh, make them bad debts and therefore uh, cause problems for their own books, so they, they lend to these zombie companies that don't make any money, you, you, you distort the industrial structure. And that's why we've become more constructive about China, because it's moving in the right direction as far as signals are concerned, and the West is, in particular, America and Europe are moving in the wrong direction. I mean, the US and Europe are heading towards Japan at a rate of knots that I can hardly believe. But that's, that's eventually great. what we're going to get to. Thanks. Zero that's growth. Great. That's great. All right, let's move on to some other questions. So we're going to do uh, Danny and then uh, Deerpoint and then KFAB. Danny, welcome. What's up? What's up, George? Dr. Jim, long time, man. Great to have you. Danny, for you. Good. You know, they always bring people back out of the woodwork like us when this stuff is going on. And I, <laughs> and I try to remain uh, rational and stuff. And when I see, hear stuff like this, it just all makes too much sense. And I get even more bearish. But question I have for you before we get into the horses, which you and I both love. Um, so, you know, what's interesting this time around is, you know, the banks themselves are really not going to be as greatly impacted. Right. The leverage is obviously less. They seem safer places to be. But the one thing that's changed in the last 15, 20 years is the bank's ability to intervene kind of in the, you know, in the markets for um, trading various products and securities, right? They're not as big as they were as far as taking risk. And we've seen that already happen on some various products, right? We can see a much, a, a lot more volatility, um, you know, in the markets. But my question is, what will be, will it be the repo markets that blow up? You know, our friend James Aiken talks about it. What's going to be the sign? Last time we saw money market funds, break the buck, right? We, we, we saw various, where is the risk going to lie? And then my second comment, get your thoughts is, 
in this zero rate environment, we've already seen instances of whether it's green cell, Archegos, these Chinese property. This is all why rates are at zero. I can only imagine what your thoughts are as rates start to move higher, kind of the dirty laundry that's going to start to come out of the woodwork. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, uh, that's a great question, uh, Danny. And uh, yeah, I'm quite sure that we could talk all day about horses, that's for certain. Um, but, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about the banks, but I, I'm not quite as convinced that they're as well positioned as they might seem to be at the moment. Yeah, sure. Okay, the regulators came in, there's bigger capital adequacy, um, they, they, they all look and they've been restricted in terms of their risk-taking, restricted in terms of their ability to get into some markets, etc., etc. But these are the guys with the zombies on their books, all of them, especially in Europe, by the way. Um, the, the, the banks do not recognise the kinds of bad debts that they've got built into the system uh, in these zombie companies. Now, in days gone by when interest rates were high, these guys would no longer exist. The banks would have written them off. They would have had bad debt crises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the moment they're on the books as live companies, these all these companies that don't make enough earnings to pay the interest on their debt and on the bank's books are live, um, not AAA, but uh, viable businesses. Now, Interest rates moving higher will make them unviable and will increase bad debts in the banking system, I think, by rather a large amount. In fact, the, the BIS did uh, estimate, I think it was the BIS or, or, or the OECD, uh, how much um, in the way of bad debts would go on uh, from corporates if interest rates were to move towards the kinds of levels that they were at in 2008. Now, that's only 5 6%. But they were talking about $65 billion worth of bad debts. So is it $65 billion or $6.5 trillion? I need to check it up. But it was a gigantic number. So I, I know what you're saying about the banks. They definitely look less leveraged. They look less risky. Um, and where will the, the, the problem come from? Uh, if the, maybe the repo markets are a, pro, a problem. I think private equity is definitely a problem as interest rates go up, given the kinds of businesses that they've been investing in. But I, I actually think the banks have a problem from within. And it's those zombie companies that, uh, as they start to fall over, the banks are going to look very, very exposed. Yeah, Jim, 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 can I ask a, a final question on that? So the history of boom-bust cycles is well-documented. In 1996, Jim Grant wrote a book entitled The Trouble with Prosperity. Mm -hmm. And I remember most vividly talking about Japan in the 90s, and you and I lived through it. And the idea was by underwriting the downside, by preventing the market from clearing, by avoiding creative destruction, you never created a healthy foundation from which growth could ensue. You know, to quote uh, Chauncey Gardner and being there, the Peter Sellers move, move yep. movie, he famously said, you know, there'll be growth in the spring. And so my question to you is, given where we are right now, we're sustaining these zombie companies that actually there's something therapeutic. I was have to say very satisfying for sure, but something very therapeutic and healthy long run to the system if you, if you allow the creative destruction. And, and yeah. if you don't, it just seems to me we're stuck in this in this morass. So, a your thoughts on that? B, 
if you were put in charge of the global economy, you were like the head of the world central bank or whatever, what would you do to fix the system? What would you do if you were in charge? Yeah. Um, no, uh, let's go to the creative disruption one. That, that's exactly what we've been writing about on the, these two reports that I mentioned to you, The Walking Dead and American Flu. Uh, it's all about removing creative destruction. Uh, and again, a, a lot of emerging markets haven't removed the creative destruction. It's still there. But there's actually very detailed work by um, the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, the BIS, but uh, they, they do some pretty uh, decent research work. And, and they've very clearly come out and said that the, these zombie companies make sure that the, um, that the process of creation of companies, more than destruction, but the creation of companies is actually short-circuited because instead of banks lending to prospective new companies that you know are a wee bit riskier but uh, look as if they've got good business models, they, they would much rather lend the money to the, the zombies that are on their books just to keep them alive. And with interest rates at close to zero, it makes sense to do that. So what this has done is it has definitely been to reduce the vibrancy of economies that have adopted these zero interest rates, ultra easy monetary policies, um, and effectively reduced the investment rate and the growth rate. And that's all documented. It's, it's estimated and documented. So I think that's a, 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 a real disaster. Um, where, where are we in terms of... Uh, uh, where would I be in terms of a policy response? Well, I think you probably know the answer, but the first thing I would do is put interest rates up 250 basis points next month, and I would stop buying government securities and mortgage-backed securities, and then stand back. Jim, man after my own heart. Danny, you've got to follow up. Well, I was going to say this is the year of value investing, so I think the horse that is the early favorite here of the Derby is called early voting and that's Seth Klarman's horse. So I don't see why that's not apropos for this year, but Jim, just real quick. So what should we be watching? I've, 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 I've taken a note of that name. Danny. Yeah. yeah. Early voting. <laughs> what, what should we be looking at? Is it going to be in the repo market, the reverse repo market? What is going to be the sign that the fed has either lost control or we are in for, you know, something people just haven't seen before. Don't understand. Is there one particular thing that you would look at um, yeah. other than the stock market? Yeah. There's better people than me, uh, Danny, on the, the repo side. Uh, you know, Andrew Cullen, uh, who, who you know well. Uh, yeah, the angry Scotsman. The angry Scotsman. Yeah, another one. But he's the guy that's, uh, that's much more on top of that market okay. than that, that's right. for sure. But uh, right. the one thing I would say to you is that I think the bond market's telling you already. The bond market is telling you that there, there's a big, big problem, and that is in the, the two-year, ten-year spread. I mean, there's absolutely no way that that should be a, a 50 basis point spread just now if everything was moving according to plan. Agreed. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Danny. Thanks for the question. All right, we're going to go to Deer Point and then KFAB. Deer Point, what's up? Uh, hey, George. Um, yeah, so I guess just maybe uh, two questions for Jim. Um, and, and Jim, just on the interest rate thing, we might disagree a little bit because I, I kind of agree more with the idea of 
Milton Friedman's interest rate fallacy. And I, I was doing some work uh, just looking at like, um, you know, bank lending. Um, and, and I basically did a 30 week percent change at an annual rate. And you still see bank lending contracting and um, the volume of credit issuance on a year over year basis um, in terms of debt securities and total credit outstanding within the banking system still contracting. Um, and so like this is kind of where I see like how one does the Fed really move? Because like for me, I, I, I believe this idea of central banks having so much um, power over liquidity effects that they can set interest rates wherever they want them is kind of blown out of proportion. I would say it's more, you know, short term liquidity effects, but the bond market and, and I would say income effects uh, play mu- a much bigger part in the medium and long term. And then my second question was was to China and how you view the debt situation there, because like when I the only number I really take from China um, is is the the velocity of money number. Um, and like, if you look at them, even compared to Japan, it seems like on, on that standpoint, um, they're much more indebted. And then when I was looking at the the credit impulse um, within China, um, it seems as the housing market uh, has started to come down, I think uh, it's at like 2.8% on a year over year basis. Um, it seems like a lot of that money is now being uh, starting to flow into like uh, the stock market within China instead of the housing market. So I didn't know if you're um, worried about anything on that front. So those are just kind of my two questions. Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying about the, the, the central banks and the, um, the, the, the their ability at the short end rather than the long end. Actually, I agree with that. That, that I think, is right. Uh, in a very sophisticated bond market, uh, of course, in uh, countries outside the United States and probably Europe, that that's much less um, the case, that the bond markets are just not that well, what would you say? Uh, they're, not, they're not mature, uh, and they, they, they tend to follow much more central bank actions. Um I hear the the the, uh, um, the criticism about uh, what's happening in the bank lending uh, and, and the, the the curtailment of loans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's actually something that we've been pointing out to, to our clients that uh, bank lending in the United States is actually very uh, moderate um, in comparison to the, the the monetary growth, and it's another reason to to be worried about the the the, the growth outlook rather than even the inflation outlook. Um, so I, I don't think we're actually that far apart in this. Of course, the, the Austrians have a different view of the, the way that interest rates work than, than Friedman, but uh, uh, that, that's uh, a longer debate, that's for sure. Let me uh, talk about the China one, though, because um, I think that you're, you're hitting on some points that are very important here. I mean, China still has a big debt problem or a big credit problem. Uh, and this is something that they've they've been slowly addressing over the course of uh, the, the last seven eight years, uh, but they're they're way way away from um, getting their, their hands really around the the, the the problem that they created in response to the two thousand and eight crisis. Um, the the housing market has been the focus of Xi Jinping's attention almost since two thousand and twelve. Now, the interesting thing is that if you go back to, and I, I could send you charts on this, and it's the way that we've t- tended to analyse China in terms of other things other than the monetary side, um, although that's very important, but it's quite difficult in China because of the size of money supply. Um, 
the if you go back to 2015, what, what you'll find is that China was in recession on all the metrics that make sense, not on fixed asset investment, which makes no sense whatsoever, not on GDP, because that's a political uh, figure that comes out, not on uh, industrial production, because again, manipulated. But if you look at things like Korean exports to China, Taiwanese exports to China, industrial production in Taiwan, because Taiwan is just part of the Chinese economy, um, freight movement, electricity production, all of these things would be telling you that 2014 into 2000, early 2016, uh, China was in recession. And house prices would tell you that as well because they were falling. And actually the housing market was a big focus of his attention at that point. So China went through a recession. None of the data just now would tell you that it's in the same problem area. None of it. There's definitely a slowdown. The domestic economy in China from our sources, are, uh, they're, they're really saying probably about 4 or 5%, no more than that. Uh, probably heading even a wee bit lower this year. Housing sector, um, again, the, the government focus now is on developers. They, they, they've been trying to get rid of these guys for uh, for ages. They are Ponzi's, a lot of them. But as usual in China, you, you should expect that what the government has lined up with respect to the property sector is somebody to pick up the pieces and start running with uh, future developments like local government finance units or a, even SOEs. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's the way that the system tends to work. Um, and I think that's what's going to happen in order that they don't go back into recession as they did in 2015. Um, as regards the credit impulse, is it moving from housing to, to the stock market? I, I, I think so. I mean, we, we're, uh, we, we recommended going long China uh, this year in uh, our, our regional portfolio but do it through the, the Hang Seng China Enterprise Index, which was absolutely appalling last year. Um, and it's up about 4% or something so far this year. Uh, but that uh, the, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, that they'll be encouraging people to um, to get moving in the stock market and to, to give a facade almost of uh, normality. But there's plenty of money around for them to do that. There's no doubt. Jim, can I just interject a question, just to be a little more explicit? Do you think the Chinese are, are aiming to just smooth out the downside with the fallout from the property market, i.e. stabilize the economy? Or do you actually think they're embarking on a, on, on a stimulus program? Because a lot of observers have been saying, Hark, look at the improvement in the monetary aggregates, you know, load, load, you know, you know load the boat with Chinese risk assets, yada, yada. So from an economy standpoint, they're just trying to smooth the downside or do you think they're actually trying to stimulate? There's a big difference. Yeah, there's a big difference. And I think they'll be stimulating in very specific areas um, because they know they can get a, a lot of purchase on things like infrastructure um, and they can move the construction workers. See, this is where it becomes quite sensible. Construction workers and housing and the like are just as much uh, transferable to infrastructure developments as anything else. So, you know, you're, you're not stretching the economy at that right. point. Just transfer. That's great. So, right. so yeah, I think that, but, but one other thing, I, I don't actually think they're particularly worried about slowing growth. And you can tell this from their 
their projections for uh, GDP out to 2035. I know that's ridiculous, but I mean, what, what they've set themselves as a goal for um, 2035 is doubling dollar GDP from 10,000 to 20,000 for uh, the Chinese population. That, if you do the, the arithmetic on that, you're only really talking about 4% real GDP growth a year, which is less than half what they would have got in the last right. 10, 15 years. All right, Jim, let's, let's, you can rest for a second. So let's move on here. Uh, we're going to do KFAB, uh, Alex, also known as Rustin Boy, and then Michael K. KFAB, what's up? Good to see you. Hey, George. Hi, Jim. Um, just two quick questions, Jim, on uh, some couple of your comments. Uh, one was relative to your, uh, rel- your your bullishness on industrial commodities. And, and just could you talk a little bit more about that and re- reconciling that with the potential for a global recession? Because it seems like those are kind of contradictory. Um, so I don't know if there's a timeline uh, or sequencing thing there. And then the, the second thing is, um, I, I get the relative move into utilities. But my question is, is that a global call? Is it uh, segmented by region? Because U.S. utilities are not real cheap, uh, particularly for people that are you know using ETFs, that kind of thing. Uh, so I was just curious how you can kind of reconcile those those two questions. Right. Yeah. No. Um, one thing uh, it was maybe either my accent, which sometimes gets people, uh, or I misstated, but we've actually got a short on industrial commodities. Um, okay. Apologies. So I, I, I have no excuse. My mother's from Clyde Bank, so it wasn't there. Oh, no. oh well, oh, my goodness, that's uh, she, she was a close uh, neighbour. My family come from Dumbarton, uh, but uh, oh, the rock. <laughs> at the rock, yes, 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 indeed. I used to have a horse called Dumbarton Rock, uh, which was quite good in Hong Kong. Um, yeah, on the, the the utilities and the relative. Uh, yeah, I was being probably a wee bit facetious. It's not facetious in the fact that it's my uh, it's my portfolio, although it's a Hong Kong electric company, which I wouldn't mention the name of. Um, but the uh, it, it was really just saying defensive. Uh, I think this is a time for people to be defensive. Now, if US utility companies are expensive, then it's important to be defensive somewhere else. That's great. Okay, Alex, you're up. What's up, Alex? Ah, hello, hello, George. Hello, Aces. Hello, Saib. Um, I just want to, um, um, to make three observations and to ask questions, which I think uh, helps everybody to make some money. So, uh, uh, first observation is, uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, there is 30 billion uh, debt in the United States, plus there is some crazy amount of unfunded liabilities like Social Security, Medicaid, Medicaid. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, on the last one of the last conferences, uh, Yellen and Powell, especially Powell, said that um, uh, there is huge demand for U.S. paper and yields are going to be low. Um, uh, and uh, um, the, my point is that uh, the United States can't actually allow, uh, the government can't allow to uh, long-term rates to go high because um, how they will fund the, the whole uh, the whole Ponzi scheme, yeah? So they need to print. Uh, uh, and uh, another observation is that every cycle uh, rates, uh, the Fed rate, uh, Fed rate is approximately 2x less than the previous high. So it was like 6% 
in 2008, 3% in 2019, and now uh, it's like, uh, what, what should it be? It, it'd be 1.5. Uh, and if it goes like uh, if rates go high, then uh, 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 like two percent. Then then it's like uh, six uh, uh, hundred billion uh, of interest payments on U.S. debt alone, and it's already in uh, fiscal deficit. So how it's gonna? So it's just uh, I don't know how it's gonna work. Um, the 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 second observation is that uh, as far Alex, as Alex, 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 I love you, man, but. Could you get to a question here? Because I really want yeah, Jim to talk. Uh, my, could, my question could, is really about, yeah, yeah, about, about, about positioning. So uh, just a second observation. I'll be fast. Um, uh, I saw the statistics that record amount of marketplace are short uh, long-term uh, treasuries. So they are all in one directional trade. And usually it leads to, to another move. So rates uh, can, get, go, can go down. Um, and... Um, uh, shouldn't we, as uh, it was in 2018, position like short uh, market long uh, treasuries just uh, now or maybe in a couple of months uh, further? That's my basic question. Right. Um, you know, actually, I, I, I don't disagree with anything that you've said. Uh, I, I think there's very simple reasons why the, um, the, the, they can't really afford interest rates to go up. And I think you've, you've outlined them all, um, the, the liabilities, the, uh, the, the way that the cycle's now working, that uh, they can't get rates up because they've built, or they've dug the hole for themselves, partly these zombie companies. Um, and yes, I suppose there is a tremendous demand for uh, government paper, but it's mostly coming from the Federal Reserve itself. So Mr. Powell would know all about where the demand's coming from. Um, but yes, uh, 2018, uh, do we go long US treasuries? I would. Now, don't remember, if it was me who was in charge, you wouldn't be long US treasuries, but it's not. And that's why, uh, even though I think uh, they, they, they need more and they should have more, they're probably going to end up with only one move, maybe at the maximum two, before they've got to re re reverse course because the economy will be in deep trouble. Um, so yeah, you you you, sh you should be long, long dated or uh, the the ten year, thirty year treasury definitely. Thanks, Thank you. Jim. All right, let's move on. So we got uh, Michael K. Always good to see you. One second, I just want to tee it up here. We're doing Michael K. and then Bob Klein and then Seth. Michael, always good to see you. What's on your mind, friend? Hey, how you doing? Hey, Jim, how you doing? Uh, Hello, Michael. We met back, uh, I don't know if it was 2010 or 11, when, when uh, I was at Wolf's Trahan. You spoke at our macro conference. Oh, Remember? yes, yes. <laughs> so, geez, it's almost 10 years, or it is 10 years ago. Time flies. I yeah. uh, hope you're doing well. I yeah. had a quick question um, regarding China, China money supply growth. I noticed M1 growth went negative for the first time in history. Is there any, do you, you chalk that up to anything? Is it meaning, meaningful, or is it just like, you think it's just a, Aberration of the data because it's around the new year. Yeah, I, I'm afraid. I think it probably is. Uh, the the M1 is dominated by Chinese corporate deposits. Um, it, it's it's where they park their money uh, when they're making when they're making money, but it, it, it tends to be very um, what would you say sensitive. To, to the Lunar New Year, if 
corporates have, uh, you know, obviously they try and pay all their bills uh, in the run up to, to New Year. That's the, uh, the, the, the Chinese system. Um, it would mean that they would be dragging money out of uh, their demand deposits. Now, somebody else would be getting the money at some point, but it's just sometimes that these things can be uh, patchy in terms of the reporting. So I, I think that M1 number's probably just a, an aberration, probably. If it's not, then um, it really means that the corporates are in trouble in China, more than anything. So that it's something to watch, but it, it's not... It's not backed up really by M2 at the moment. So. Yeah, Ma- Michael, you have, Michael, you have a follow up? No, no, that's all. That's great. Th- thanks, Michael. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to Bob and then Seth. Bob, what's up? Hey, George, thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Jim, uh, my son and I came to meet you in Hong Kong a couple of years back. He was 18 at the time. And right. I, you remember, you, you graciously. Uh, uh, met us and we, 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 we had a good chat about uh, China yes. and the global economy. So just following on that, uh, the fact that you're now in Scotland, is this a permanent <laughs> move or, or you're, uh, are you still based in Hong Kong? Or? I, I'm kind of still based in Hong Kong. I've still got a flat in Hong Kong, but uh, uh, my, my, my wife has definitely moved back to Scotland because uh, the, the grandkids are just... Uh, a few miles down the road, uh, and they're yeah. three and uh, two months. So uh, that, that's pretty important. But uh, yeah. for me, I'll be going back and forward, travel allowing. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a not a concern about what's what's happening over there. It's more personal. Uh, it's more personal. personal. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Plus, I want to yeah. see some more horse racing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, uh, so so your big takeaways are that. You think with something that doesn't quite fit in my mind, I'm trying to grasp from what you're saying. You think the Fed should raise rates a couple hundred basis points right away. And yet and yet you're saying that all it'll take is one or two 25 basis point hikes and the whole thing is going to fall apart. Um, maybe you could reconcile those two. Uh, yeah. There's, there's not really much to reconcile, Bob, because the Fed and I live in different worlds. Uh, I mean, I, I, I do believe in creative destruction. I think it's absolutely essential for economies to move forward. Um, and I think we've we've suppressed creative destruction for, uh, I mean, 250 is really not enough, but uh, that, that's what I would do first off. Um, but the, the, the difference between me and them is that uh, they, they, they know what that would do. It would be absolutely catastrophic for the economy for a year uh, and that's why they, 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 they'll try and avoid that at all costs and I think that's probably why when they see the, uh, the, the, the waves that even 25 basis points is going to move is going to make in the, the markets and in the economy they'll back away from it very quickly I will but that's as I say we, we, we live in different worlds mm-hmm. and then one follow-up on China um, we just uh, um, close a circle on that. You seem to be, as an Austrian, it, it's got to somehow, or, or being influenced by the Austrians and indebted to them, it's got to put you in a little bit of a tough spot, believing that Xi Jinping can, the master planner can navigate and guide this behemoth uh, 
authoritarian state uh, to the promised land economically, and they can get out of this monster housing bubble that they're trying to deflate gently. I, I'm skeptical that they can manage it, um, you know, gently uh, and, 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 and get through this. But, but you seem to not share my skepticism or maybe have some skepticism, but you seem to be more optimistic. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was optimistic, Bob, and I, I completely hear you. Uh, and it's very uncomfortable uh, being an Austrian and um, uh, having to defend somewhat the, the, the Chinese policy environment. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, but he, here's where I think it, it, it make, there's a big difference between China and the rest of the world. And that's that basically the state owns the banking system. And in the, the, the Austrian model, the, the, if you like, the, the, the big weak link in the whole system, the financial system, is the banks. Uh, because they're the ones that make mistakes. They, uh, they become over-enthusiastic uh, during booms, etc., etc. Um, and then when there's a downturn, they don't only stop lending to companies, they stop lending to each other. And you tend to get a, a very concentrated and swift um, if you like, correction in the, the, the whole banking system. Uh, and that's just because a lack of trust builds up or um, or whatever. And there's nothing much that governments and uh, central banks can do about that until it, it's it's over. Now, in China, of course, it's it's not like that. Um, the, the, the government and the central bank can turn around to the biggest banks in the Chinese system and say, look, uh, lend to these guys, even though we don't like them, um, but do it just now and uh, it'll save all our bacon. Now, I, I hate that system, but uh, um, the, the, the truth of the matter is that it gives them more, if you like, flexibility to attempt landings. And then if they see the landing not working to get the lift off again, which the uh, the, the, the private system, the private enterprise banking system doesn't yield. That's great. Thanks for that, Jim. Thanks, Bob. Seth, Thank you're you. up. You got a question, Seth? Seth? Yeah, th thanks, George. Uh, Jim, it was good to hear you talking about the non-performing uh, debt. I cover restructuring and insolvencies in Europe. Uh, and because of COVID-19 and, and the liquidity out there, the level of insolvencies have never been lower. Uh, so we, we, we personally believe the level of insolvencies will probably uptick when things become normal. But I just wanted to get your views on, on the European markets. So do, do you think, uh, I mean, the ECB was at pains actually um, uh, signaling the market that it's not going to raise the rates at the same rate as it, had, uh, as it has initially indicated. Uh, but you saw a significant move, especially uh, in some of the spreads, Italian bond market, the, the Greece, the French one. Do you see uh, that, uh, and, and that area of the market has al always been vulnerable for the last seven, eight years, uh, and there was obviously the PICS crisis, the Portuguese island, Greece, Spain crisis in 2014. Uh, do, you see, do you see that coming back uh, on, on the table? Do you see contagion effect possibly from the Italian bond crisis or even the French impacting the equity markets? Uh, just keen, keen on your thoughts on this one. Yeah, I, I've got to say, Seth, that, that Europe is by far my weakest uh, point, partly because I've, I've just never studied the economies that strongly and uh, I, I've got views on the system. Uh, the, the one thing that I would say is that the interesting thing um, that they've done in the last year or so is uh, that they've passed this resolution of um, pumping liquidity into the system and, and increasing the, the, the EU budget 
to try and transfer money into infrastructure projects, etc., across um, the southern countries, uh, and that's who would be uh, taking it up. If they can get that uh, moving, then they, they, they probably alleviate some of the problems for themselves. Of course, the big problem in Europe is that uh, uh, governments are not particularly good at spending money that's allocated to them from the, the EU, um, or, or haven't been in the past. So that, I think that remains a, uh, a bit of a problem area. But yeah, when it gets into the, the, the mechanisms of what's going on in Europe, I, I'm afraid because we cover Asia, we, we tend to look very closely at America and what the Fed is doing because it's all about interest rates and how that translates into uh, external debt in Asian countries and indeed policy uh, within some parts of Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, for example. Europe just doesn't get it to the, the get onto the radar screen that much, I'm afraid. Jim, just one related follow-on question to that. We haven't really talked much about the dollar and all this. Do you have any strong views in the dollar right now? We've got a short on it, um, George, the the dollar index, but that's partly because it's been quite strong in the last couple of years, Um, interestingly strong. Uh, And it's also because I I think there's a recession coming and uh, during times when Democrat presidents are in uh, office and there's a a hint of recession that they're quite keen to uh, to weaken the dollar um, as a, res- a response and as a, a way of trying to uh, increase the export activity. So we're, we're uh, short on the dollar just now. Let me say one thing just about that, by the way, though. I mean, I, I find it absolutely incredible that the, the, the there's no chatter at all uh, in the US about the Japanese, the Koreans and the Taiwanese absolutely eating your lunch. Because these three countries are not China. China, by the way, the renminbi went up against the dollar last year. Uh, and the dollar was the strongest uh, major currency in the world, except for the renminbi. Um, but the, the yen at 115, uh, the, the won at, was at almost 1,200. Uh, and mostly the Taiwan dollar at 27.50, 27.70, wherever it is just, just now. Absolutely unbelievable currency manipulation from these countries. And Jim, related to that, if you were looking at a relative value trade, um, given your rather downbeat view of markets, do you think those markets in particular, Korea, just put your Asian hat on for a second. Do you think uh, Korea, Japan, Taiwan will probably outperform the S&P in in, in the years ahead? Or do you have a strong view on that? Um, In the years ahead, I think China will. um, uh, the, The... if I'm right about the yen having to strengthen, the Japanese stock market will go down. Um, Taiwan, the, 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 they have the, the the semiconductor industry sewn up, and that's not going to go away for a while. So you've got, although the valuations are probably quite rich there, but you really have a, a, a technology play uh, of global importance in Taiwan just now. Uh, but the currency should be an awful lot stronger. Korea. Yeah, yeah sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the, the Korean one's an interesting one. It actually looks a lot cheaper, but it usually does. Um, but one of my friends, we had a, a meeting, a Zoom meeting uh, the other week there, um, and they said the the, the the guy on the left, uh, who's potentially, who's the same party as the current uh, president, uh, makes Moon Jae-in uh, look like a Thatcherite. Uh, and the guy on the right um, is 
the most incredible nutcase uh, that's probably entered politics. Maybe, maybe Donald Trump would have come into the the, 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 the reckoning there. But uh, I mean, some of the stuff that he comes out with is just unreal. So, so Korea has a major political problem coming. Um, and it might not be, uh, we, we're, we're long career, but I hadn't really realised that the politics was so bad in the elections next, is it next month? Uh, I think it's next month. Uh, it's either that or May. Um, so they, they, they look as if they've got a major problem coming with domestic poli- uh, politics. Right. All right. So now we're going to do something a little bit different. We've got some fun, Jim. For those of you that don't know, that's the last thing I put up on the title, horse racing. Jim, you've been so generous with your time. We're going an hour and a half, but. I really, I don't know anyone who's really owned horses, and I want to hear from you. But before you speak on this, I'm going to play a, 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 a clip. It's a minute and 20 seconds, um, so just stand by. And then, Jim, after we listen to this, you can tell everyone about this experience and what happened. So here we go, boys and girls. Oops, hold on. One second. Sorry. All right. Hold on. One second. Stand by. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Hold on. All right. Here we go. Okay. Play. Oh. All right. Furlongs. They're on their way back towards home in this vintage running of the Gold Cup. And it continues to be Yvonne Nabien who has the advantage. Subjective is showing in second place. Be about a length behind. About two lengths then behind those for the Melbourne Cup winner, Twilight Payment. Uh, one of three runners in the race who've already won more than a million pounds. A big move, Serpentine. Extreme right, dark blue jacket. Ryan Moore is making progress towards the leaders around the outside of Nayef Road. Stradivarius just being held in at the moment by Princess Zoe, trying to get out. Spanish Mission is behind him. Then comes Santiago, but they're inside of the turn into the state. And now it's Subjectivist and Joe Fanning who sends him for the line. Goes on, quickly goes two or three legs clear. Second position is Twilight Payment. And then comes Nayef Road in the blue and red jacket. On the extreme right is Serpentine. Stradivarius only has two behind him into the home stake. Two furlongs to go. Subjectivist and Joe Fanning have moved into a five-length lead. Princess Zoe and Nayef Road in second and third. Here's Stradivarius against the rail. He's in fourth position. He's in third position. He has a lot of ground to make up on Subjectivist, who is now on the furlong pole with a three-length lead. Second place, Princess Zoe. Spanish mission behind those. Stradivarius is back in fourth position. Subjectivist, Joe Fanning, stole the race, heading into the home stage. Subjectivist wins by a good distance. Princess Zoe in second, Spanish mission was next. Then Stradivarius, followed by Emperor of the Sun, Mayor Frodo behind those Santiago. Oh, this is a wonderful result for Joe Fanning, Mark Johnston, and Dr. Walker, the owner of Subjectivist. <laughs> Jim. Okay. Yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, Jim has a horse problem. So, Jim, can you explain how long you've been? Oops. Can you explain how long you've been in horses? What's it like being an owner? Do it for fun or profit? Is it like a sinkhole for black hole for money? Like, tell us a little bit about your experience in horses. And I want to know about this 
you won this big race. Tell us about that. And, and, and just again, I, I want to vicariously live, 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 live your thrills. So give us a little bit on horse racing. Yeah, well, the, 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 it's definitely true that this is the way to turn a large fortune into a small one um, if you're winning horses. But uh, sometimes it's uh, it's all made good by one or two experiences. And that was uh, uh, just one of the, the, the experiences of my life, uh, which was last June. Uh, at Royal Ascot, um, we, we, uh, we, hang on, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. For, for us Americans, I know this Ascot thing is a big deal. Can you? Is this like your Kentucky Derby, basically? Like, what is this thing? Is yeah, well, it's it's a it's effectively five days of the the, the, the top most quality uh, horse racing in basically Europe. Uh, because there's I can't remember how many Group Ones and Group Twos, but these are the kind of top races. Um, in that full week, but uh, every race is a is a huge race, and some of the best horses that you've ever seen uh, run that week. Um, now we, we we were in the the Gold Cup, the Gold Cups. Uh, um, it's actually the, the 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 race of the week in a sense, but it's run over two miles four furlongs, which for Americans is probably about uh, a mile longer than you would ever imagine anything running. Um, so the, the the race takes about four minutes twenty seconds to to run, uh, as long as the going's good. But that that was what he won, uh, and uh, as you've probably uh, sussed, uh, he was called subjectivist. Uh, m- most of my horses have got that kind of theme. Uh, I've owned a very good one called Austrian School. Uh, yeah, do you, do you, what, what are some of the other names? I'm curious to know. Yeah, well, uh, you know, actually, I, I managed to confuse myself last year because. Uh, I bought three, and I had three two-year-olds. One was Austrian theory, value theory, and capital theory. Um, and I managed to get mixed up myself with what was running, but, uh, but they, they all tend to be based on that, uh, uh, that, that, that kind of Austrian economics theme. Until this year, and now I've, I've gone for, uh, for a, a bit more uh, geographical. So I've got Beric Law, uh, Venetian, Colowan, uh, Muir Wood, as in the Muir Woods, as you would call them in uh, San Francisco, and Montevideo are all coming through this year. So that's where all the money from <clears throat> winning the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Ascot Gold Cup went. I bought more horses. Oh, God, you sound like You asked me how long, how long I've been involved. So, so my mum and, so and dad mean, took me to a race course when I was four. And I've been involved ever since. Basically, how, how, did, you, how, how did you get involved? Yeah, they, 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 my mum and dad were uh, keen punters, not horse owners. Um, but they, we used to go on holidays to uh, places that had race meetings on uh, during the summer. So when I was four, I first went to a place called Devon and Exeter. Um, but normally we went to Ayr, which is the big race course in Scotland for our holidays. Uh, and then in 1998, when I came back from Asia for a few years, uh, when CLSA were doing global emerging markets, um, I started uh, owning horses with a, a Scottish trainer, and then it's kind of grown a bit since then. So this this year, there's there's going to be ten of them in training. So you have how many horses? You have ten horses. Wow, that's ten, awesome. Yeah. So all right, so Jim, you've been great with your time. If you want to hang on, that's great. Does anybody have any questions for Jim on horses or anything else? Otherwise, Jim, you're welcome to just hang out. We're probably going to talk for a few more minutes, but we've learned so much from you. This has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I don't know if anyone, three aces or uh, 
anyone else wants to ask any questions, um, let me see here. We got, uh, uh, where are we? Yep, we have, uh, let's see. So, Luis, you're up. Did you have a question? Did you, Luis, did you, Luis, you're coming up right now. Did you have a question for uh, Jim? Luis, did you have a question for Jim? Luis, do you have a question for Jim? I don't know. I guess not. All right. Um, any other questions? Or so, hey, did you have anything you want to touch on? So, 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 Jim, you should just know there are a bunch of energy uh, fans in the room. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on oil prices or energy, Jim? <laughs> you know, I, I used to be the oil analyst at the Royal Bank of Scotland uh, in my youth, George, but... Uh, uh, for all the years that I was there, I don't even think I managed to get the direction right, let alone the, the amount of uh, oil price forecasting. So, yes, my, my projection for this year is that we'll be, we'll be closer to 45 uh, than we are just now at 90 by the end of the year. So uh, probably people can take that as meaning that it's going to go to 150. Is that is that just based on your view of the economy, more or less? Yeah, it's, it's based on the economy, yeah. So you're, so you're not really getting in the weeds on... Um... And how much supplies left? You just think we're going to have a recession, and that's going to cause demand to go down? Is that the basic view? That's it. Yeah, got it. Okay, we have a fellow from the hood. Um, we have Detroit Bad Boy. Detroit Bad Boy, good to see you. You got a question for Jim? Yes, uh, George. Thank you for hosting this, and Jim, uh, thanks for your insights. I just have a basic elementary question. Um, what are the one or two Austrian school of economic principles? that you're steadfast on, i.e. they're iron rules that you have found to be good leading indicators as to where things are going? Yeah, um, very good question. Uh, I mean, what we've we've done over the years is uh, try for Asia to develop, um, not models, we don't do models, but uh, uh, um, what would you say, things that we monitor in the economy. Um, the, the, the most important for any Austrian is profits. Profits make the world go round. They, they uh, entice people into businesses. They, uh, they, they make economic growth. Um, so for us, the, the profit cycle and what's influencing the profit cycle is absolutely critical. And the second thing is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, what we, we like to think of as real lending rates. Um, and again, we, we monitor that very, very closely in Asia and see whether the, the signals that are being sent are um, conducive to supporting economic growth or likely to result in malinvestment. Um, in some countries, uh, it's, uh, the, the, there's, there's real kind of growth uh, impairment at the moment because real interest rates are actually very high, uh, real lending rates. Uh, and others, uh, they're, they're too low. But uh, that we, we try and follow that and uh, uh, effectively inform our clients about where things stand in, in each country as regards profit cycles and uh, lending rate cycles. And, of course, we, we overlay that with credit. Detroit Fairboy, you got enough follow-up? No, that's perfect. Thank you. That's great. Okay, so we're going to do Follow the Fed. How are you, Follow the Fed? What's up? Hey, thanks, George. Thanks, Dr. Walker, uh, for taking my question. Um, I have a question regarding China, China investment. And I was listening to Dr. Charlie Munger interview, and someone asked 
Charlie that, you know, why you invested in Baba and, you know, Chinese stocks. And his answer was basically because I like Baba and uh, I think it has more upside than than other stocks and I can do whatever I want. And if you don't like to invest with me, don't invest because he had a lot of questions regarding Baba. Uh, so uh, I'm struggling as an American investor with so much, uh, you know, Cold War-like situation going on between United States and China. And there are regulatory issues going on that, you know, they, they may they may ban the trading of those Chinese stocks and things like that. Um, I like Chinese stock as valuations. What do you think? Uh, how should an American investor should approach Chinese stocks, which which I really like on valuation, some of them. But, you know, I'm a little skeptical and scared of investing because of, uh, yeah, you know. Let me rephrase the question. I think I know where you're going with this. Because I've been staying away from all these things just because I think investing in China is just a foreign as a fool's errand. But in particular, I've been concerned about the regulatory point you're raising. So, Jim, I think the particular question is, you know, the, the U.S. authorities are demanding the Chinese cough up um, audits, uh, audit financial statements in accordance with uh, Western generally accepted accounting principles. And the Chinese are refusing yeah. to do this, and it's become a whole pissing yes. match. Do you th- who do you think is going to blink on that one, Jim? Do you have any perspective on that, or is that getting too much in the weeds? Well, the, the, the Chinese won't blink on it, uh, George. If that means that they can't list in America and the um, they, they don't attract U.S. money, then so be it. They, they, they won't care. Um, they, they'll use Hong Kong if they can, or if they don't, if they kill Hong Kong, which looks as if that's what they're trying to do at the moment, they'll just shift the, the emphasis to Singapore or somewhere else for listing. Um, it, it's a real uh, problem for U.S. investors just now. It's a problem for any investor, actually, given that we... Um, we, we, we watch the Chinese intervening in their own market uh, and in their own companies uh, in what seems like a, a pretty kind of willy-nilly um, fashion. But it isn't willy-nilly. It's very easily signposted. It's what they say that they're going to do. They don't necessarily say that they're going to do something and then the next day they do it. It might take 10 years, but... Uh, uh, you, 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 it's actually quite easy to, to, to see what areas of the economy and types of companies that the Chinese government is uncomfortable uh, with. Alibaba, perfect yeah. example. Yeah, um, yeah so, so, so you're saying don't, because I think there's a lot of complacency in the U.S. People look at things like Alibaba, which they can say, oh, it's just like Amazon, look at the PE and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, no. And no. You're, saying, you're saying be careful. Yeah. Your warning. I got it. All right. I mean, Jack, Jack Ma flew too close to the sun, and the sun is Xi Jinping, by the way. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's great. All right. So thank you so much. Here. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so we're gonna do um four oh nine six, Sohaib and then Alex. Four oh nine six, what's up? Hey, um yeah, really appreciate the conversation uh with Jim and you know George. Uh thanks. I was hoping to get uh, a reaction from Professor Plum ninety nine's uh, reaction to what Jim Walker was saying. Feel free to uh react to that. Uh yeah, we'll see if, if see if Michael wants to come up. I don't know if he's not walking <laughs> his dog or or he or whatever. But um, just watch what you're saying, Michael, or I would I would keep following you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, so I, I'd like Michael to come up. I don't know if he's busy or whatever. So we'll just stand by. Hopefully, he'll, he'll raise his hand. So, hey, did you have something? Yeah, I was Sorry. just going to say, yeah, uh, I've been re following the material that uh, Jeff Curry's been talking about. How you know, commodity is a great space uh, place to be in uh, in in an inflationary environment. And uh, earlier in the talk, you talked about how um, you're sort of navigating throughout maybe potential recession or inflation through the utilities. So if you could just talk about the distinction between that and why you feel that utilities is a better place to be rather than uh, some of the commodity sphere. Uh, yeah, sphere. No, I, I think so. I think mean, it was pretty, I mean, just, I don't know if you can remember the replay, but he was, I think he's basically just looking for a recession. And so the price of all commodities to go down, it's not a well specific thing. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I hear what Soheb's saying, and it's right in the sense that if there's a lot of inflation around uh, in the systems kind of operating normally, commodities are a great place to be. I agree with that. Um, but as George says, you know, if you're, you're looking at recession, then um, and that's what that's what controls inflation. Two things control inflation, recessions and high inflation, because High inflation leads to recessions uh, for various reasons. So um, th th that makes me pretty negative on industrial commodities at the moment. Not Jim, Jim, particularly Jim, negative. Jim, 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 can you just drill that? And Michael, I want you to speak in a second. Jim, can you just drill that one point further? So you're saying basically we're going we're gonna to get a recession out of this. But you just said, and I agree with you, two things can cure inflation, high, high inflation or recession. So this idea that we're just going to have some sort of soft landing from these know-nothings, to me, is just just my opinion. I don't want you to necessarily agree with me, but this idea that um, we're going to have a soft landing just flies, to my way of thinking, completely in the face of common sense and history that you need to have a recession or you've got highly stimulative policies in place right now. With You were talking about, I think it's the Wixalian rate or whatever, interest rates well below the, the, the rate of nominal GDP. So, Jim, without a recession... How, without let's, without a recession, if I were to tell you, let's just say spend this belief for one second, right? Three months from now, six months from now, there's no recession. I mean, or, or put it this way, there, there, there's no recession. What happens to inflation? Keeps going higher in your view? Absolutely. Keeps so, going higher. Because okay. if, there's no, if there's no recession, they, they've begun printing money hand over fist again. Now, you, you mentioned a piece in one of your Twitter comments the other day, George, about Michael Howell's work on money supply growth and the, 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 the money supply impulse coming down. It's still positive, by the way, but it's, it was only at 5% or whatever. You know, in the Austrian world, when money supply growth decelerates after an inflationary episode, and we've had a big inflationary episode in the last couple of years, when it decelerates, it causes recession. It doesn't need to go negative. It doesn't need to contract. Deceleration will cause a recession. The only way to keep the recession from not happening is if you actually expand the pace of growth of money supply creation, and that's not going to happen. Wow. Well, go, go tell that to the Fed. Sorry, so hold on a second. We've got so, Michael, Michael Green is in the house. So, Michael, good to see you as always. I think there was an invitation from uh, one of the other folks in the room to, to for your comments, and we're always eager to learn from you. So, Michael, the floor is yours. Michael, I don't know if you and Jim know each other, but, you know, have at it. Uh, Jim and I do know each other. We've, but we don't quite have the three decades that you have with him, but uh, I've been 
talking to Jim since basically 2003. So 19 years, I guess, is, is a reasonable enough time history, almost into our second decade or third decade. Um, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure what exactly I'm being asked to comment on um, from Dr. Jim's observations, but I would just highlight a couple of quick things. One, completely agree with his assessment of uh, the dynamics of inflation. Inflation is ultimately the market mechanism for taking away the excess money printing that has occurred um, and taking away the stimulus support, effectively taking the too much money and turning it into not enough to buy the goods. We hear this anytime there's a hyperinflation, that effectively money printing becomes a mechanism to provide people with the resources that they need to buy things. It's just the shortage of the resources can't be solved by it. So completely agree with him um also share his concern about the zombification and the fact that we have an extraordinary number of companies that cannot handle higher interest rates i also agree with him that the interest rate markets are telling us exactly that and would finally highlight on the energy space i mean we've seen um you know the fast money investors completely flip from enthusiasm for the pandemic to complete enthusiasm for the energy sector hedge funds are more overweight energy than they have been at any time since the summer of 2008 we know how that played out um, they're more underweight technology and safety than they've been at any time since that same time period uh and to me it just feels like everybody's on the wrong side i i'm i i don't know if we'll get an official recession but it is very hard for me to see how we avoid it, given the dynamics of an extraordinary wave of austerity. And that's what this is. This is the delayed austerity that is hitting in the same way that it did Europe in kind of 2011. That's what's underway. That's great. Thanks, Michael. All right. We got a, now we got two Michaels up here. So, Jim, you created quite a stir and a lot of trouble. We got Michael uh, uh, Green, obviously. And now we have Michael Howe. So, Michael Howe, welcome. I don't hi, know. hi. <laughs> so, Michael, I don't know. I think you dropped out for a second. I don't know. Your comments, I think, are reasonably similar with Jim. I don't know any thoughts, comments, reactions, or anything you want to ask Jim, or Jim, anything you want to ask Michael? Michael, you carry on. Okay, yeah, I mean, I'll just um... – let, let me sort of give a give a couple of thoughts. I mean, I, I missed maybe the last five minutes. So um, uh, if I overlap, I apologize. Well, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. You missed the part about the horse racing? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not my scene, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. I, look, I, I think, the, I think the, the key thing is that the fixed income markets are telling us something that is pretty critical. And although a lot of people are fixed on, uh, the yield curve, I mean, the yield curve is clearly important. I think the thing to remember is that actually the yield curve itself has got a pretty flaky track record of actually predicting recessions. Um, however, uh, taking a deep breath, the, the fact is that when the yield curve flattens alongside convexity, in other words, the bulge in the curve picking up substantially, and that's exactly what we've had. The long end of the market has flattened appreciably. Convexity has shot up. That's the combination that's really dangerous. And, you know, going back wearing my Salomon Brothers hat, that was the thing that really used to spook the traders. Uh, that, that environment is basically one that seems to foretell recession for the simple reason that the front end of the curve is where you've got a lot of refinancing, uh, particularly of corporate debt. Uh, that's a lot more expensive. And the back end flattening says that the appetite for risky debt is, or anything risky, is just diminishing fast. Uh, the fact that the back end flattens, in other words, the 10-5 spread, 
which is flattening fast. Uh, I've never seen it flatten actually as quickly as it has in the last six months. That's telling you that the appetite for any risk uh, among fixed income players is is fast evaporating. So I think on that score, um, you know, it looks as if the economy is sinking fast. You look at latest surveys that come out that came out of uh, Michigan University of Michigan uh, last week. You look at the previous week's uh, ISM with the inventory sales, the uh, orders inventory ratio collapsing. I mean, all these things are telling you the economy in the U.S. is slowing pretty rapidly, and that's uh, that's not great. So I think the sentiments that somebody echoed uh, earlier on to say that you know the Fed the Fed is going to start thinking about easing a lot sooner uh, than people think is probably a reality. Uh, so I think that's that's one one theme. I think the other theme I'd say is that there's something really odd going on in China because the Chinese are simply not goosing their economy in the way they've done before. Stability mm. is the order of the day. And I think that's uh, that's important for commodity markets everywhere because they won't get the boost that many people are thinking. Right. So maybe so, so Jim, um, maybe um, this whole China thing, recognizing how important China is. We know all the statistics, percentage of world GDP, GDP growth, percentage of cement, cement consumption, steel, all that sort of stuff. That's really a critical point. I mean, do you want to drill down maybe with Michael any for Michael Green or Michael Howe on, on, on the China uh, observation again? Because it's it's so opaque and we got seasonal issues with Chinese New Year and the Olympics, and all that other stuff. But do you have any more in-depth thoughts, Jim, about about China? Well, I think Michael Howell makes a very, very good point there uh, that the, the the reaction that you might have expected hasn't happened. And I, I think this dates back to basically 2010. Um, the, the, the reaction of the Chinese at the, the point where the global economy was in recession, the financial crisis was in full swing, Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao were the leaders at that point. They, they basically took off all the caps on everything and just said go for growth and go for uh, effectively corruption right through the uh, the political system the 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 the, the, uh, the politicians made money hand over fist and when Xi Jinping came into power in 2012 the the, the thing that he had to re-establish was the credibility of the communist party the Communist Party at that time was the the least popular that I've ever seen. It's never been particularly pro- popular in China, contrary to many people's views. But uh, people hated it with a vengeance because they saw them as having made all the money. Uh, SOEs, local governments, politicians, uh, over the course of a two to three year period, had just raked it in. And he is totally determined not to make that mistake again. Now, in, in 2010 to 12, effectively, the Chinese saved the global economy. If you look at how much they pumped into the system, how high GDP growth was, as a uh, proportion of global growth uh, relative to countries that were actually uh, seeing uh, GDP go down, uh, of course, the Chinese just goosed the system and made all sorts of mistakes in their own economy, uh, partly to do with where interest rates were, but as I say, they, they ended up with overcapacity everywhere and bad debts everywhere. And again, that's not going to happen this time. So Michael's exactly right. This uh, It's quite interesting, but it's just not what markets might have anticipated that the Chinese would do into a slowing economy. And that's remained pretty much on the sidelines. Now, one thing that helps them there, of course, is that 10 years ago, 
Uh, we had, I can't remember how much, but maybe about 15 million to 20-odd million uh, new entrants into the labour force every year. Today, minus. They don't need to goose the economy anymore. They don't need to create jobs in the way that they used to. The, their workforce is falling. So uh, anybody that's waiting for China to save the day, um, they're on the wrong bus. Right. So, 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 so Jim, Jim Walker and, and, and Michael Howe, and even Michael Green, if you wish. So, Michael uh, Howe, you've been making the point that, you know, we get this tightening phase and then before before long, you know, 2023 at the latest, whatever, the Fed's going to have to be in an easing, easing mode again, um, I guess, after things break. So, Jim, do you do you is that kind of your roadmap as well? I mean, because you because it sounds like you expect things are going to break pretty soon also. So is, is it only a question of time before we're back in an easing mode again? Yeah, I think they'll be in an easing mode by June. Because wow. I, I'm completely with Michael about the... I, I actually think it's quite interesting. He probably knows the, the research as well, the, the Blanchflower and Bryson paper on um, the uh, consumer sentiment indicator from the University of Michigan, which has, a, 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 I must admit, surprised me, a very good track record in, uh, in spotting US recessions. Uh, I mean, they, they, they published the paper last year uh, saying that, uh, that the University of Michigan indicator was telling the world that the U.S. was going into recession in 2022. And I think that's right. So they'll be easing as quickly as they can. Michael, how are you? Is that, is that kind of your time frame as well? I think the, sure. I think the other thing to say is that, I mean, may, maybe that's... Uh, I wasn't quite expecting that that rapidly, but I think the direction is clear. And you just look at the history of the U.S. rate structure. I mean, in the last 50 years, uh, Fed funds has never traded through the five-year note. Um, so that's suggesting that the cap on Fed funds is going to only be about 2%. Um, so that's not what the market's currently thinking. And our target on the 10 years being around about two and a quarter to two and a half. So we're pretty close to those those levels. I mean, we think there'll be buying coming in relatively soon. And I think as somebody pointed out, there's a lot of shorts in the bond market right now. Yeah. And, and Michael Howe, I don't know if you heard this, but Jim Walker was talking earlier about one of his uh, favorite assets is volatility. And I seem to recall from past comments from yourself, Michael, that I think volatility is something that you have a liking for as well. Is that, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, vol is going to pick up. But I mean, you're seeing you're seeing the signs already. I mean, typically, uh, I mean, way, going back way back when I was at Salomon Brothers, we did a lot of work on looking at the migration of volatility. And what you typically saw was that vol starting in the fixed income markets, uh, migrating into the equity markets, and then ending up in the forex markets. And you see quite an interesting sequence uh, pattern. And what you're seeing is almost exactly that. There's some, there's some big moves in the move index, the vol, the vol on the bond on the uh, U.S. Uh, term structure. Uh, VIX has clearly elevated, uh, and currencies are curiously quiescent at the moment. But that mm. may change. Right. Wow. Hey, oil guy, you've always got something interesting to say. Oil guy, did you uh, did you want to throw a question, oil guy? Yeah. Good morning. Thank you so much. Uh, to Jim and to everybody, the very insightful months. Really appreciate it. I would like to ask whoever wants to field the question, some observations of why I think this time is different. Uh, and, and, and largely because I don't have the experience you do, but it seems like this COVID situation has created uh, an incredible divide between the haves and the have-nots. 
I mean, for those like George Noble, that he sees it every day in Twitter spaces. The have-nots convincing everybody that this is what you do become a have, and it's just insane. So why I think this time is different is because there's lots more net the net worth of people, the refinancing of these companies is all enabling the top end of the K in this recovery to go out, spend and consume. And as we've seen with early travel numbers, that entire top end of the K wants out. And I think even between the top and the bottom end of this K-shaped recovery, consumption and you know movement of people again, whether you're India who's benefiting from North America's wage inflation or not, I feel like you're gonna have a huge demand for things like commodities because still, although the world itself can't move at a, at a, at a you know, in a very good pace here in terms of an economic recovery, because you do have two Ks pulling apart from one another, it seems like consumption is still going to be the name of the game because there's so much money out there. The money's high in it with people. And um, it may not be, you know, the, the biggest set of the population, but the one thing we've seen from, you know, look at TSA traffic improving just in places like the US, a lot of people in debt. Um, I just feel like commodities will actually stay elevated, but the world will have a big problem as a result of it. And that's actually going to be more sustained. And I'm just wondering, the question I actually have is, has anybody been in a situation where you can look back in time and tell us how a tale of two economies emerged because of something like a global health pandemic? Thank you. Michael or Jim, either Michael or Jim, anyone want to have a shot at that? I mean, I guess it's, the question really is the very unusual nature of this situation, perhaps being without precedent, maybe most similar to the post-war environment. I don't know. But but why the past roadmaps we have may not be particularly or exactly appropriate this time around the track. No pun intended. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think it's a really, really good question. And it's uh, a the reason I was slow to answer it is because I don't know the answer and I don't have a, a clear view on it, but uh, we have a very bifurcated world. There's no doubt about that. Um, and if uh, we, we could take all the rich people and put them in, let's say, Australia, uh, it would be doing very nicely and everybody else could just be uh, moseying along very poorly, um, as the, the, many people have been over the course of the last 20 years, despite the fact that equity markets have gone up so much. But yeah, I, I don't really know what the answer is. It's certainly different in that sense. But, you know, the, the, the parallels are still there. Um, and the, the pandemic with the response to it has been one of the, the earth-shattering moves in terms of uh, the, the price structure uh, of the economy. And I think that's just going to play out as normal. Yeah, so just so, so, so Jim, just to pour gas on oil gods fire, no pun intended, talking about a tale of two economies, you know, on the one hand, at the same time, you have 40% of the population with less than $1,000 to their name, talking about in the U.S., living paycheck to paycheck. You have insane stories of real estate speculation. I can tell you, be it in the New York City area, Florida, California, wherever, and I can tell you from firsthand knowledge, people are so cashed up. You know, I, I'm very close to people in the real estate market. And I, I asked them, you know, well, gee, what happened to the obvious question? You know, what rates going up? What's going to happen to housing? Blah, blah, blah. And it was like, okay, well, you know, call, call back when rates are up 100 basis points. That was 50 basis points ago, just because there's so much cash in the system. And I tweeted out a couple of weeks ago, GavCal had this um, – uh, great chart it showed uh, cash levels and okay fine for the corporate sector you have to subtract out the debt I get it 
But you look at cash levels in the banking system and the corporate sector on the individual level, you know, it's extremely high. You look at interest uh, debt service costs as a percentage of uh, income for uh, individuals. And yes, it's a bifurcated market to be sure. Uh, but it kind of begs the question. You, you, again, you look here in, in just a suburb of in or in in, 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 in in the New York City area or, like, or Detroit Bad Boys down in Florida. I mean, it kind of makes me think that rates may have to go up considerably more than imagined to kill the real economy. I get these zombie guys are out of business. I get that. But it's just like when you look at the cash levels, I suppose, in the S&P, you know, there are a few really large companies, the Apples of the world which have tons of cash and maybe they skew the sample, but it's a really weird situation. And I, I just think there's, there's, there's so much liquidity in the system that there's, there's oil got asked a really good question. Um, I don't know, Michael Howell or Michael Green, you want to have a shot at it? I, yeah. I mean, I, I would just say that I think the question is somewhat improperly framed, right? Because when you have very low interest rates, and excessive amounts of financialization, you effectively are creating that cash. It becomes a bit of an illusion. So you can just think this term, I can submit a treasury into repo and turn that into cash that I can then use to buy other products. That's typically quoted at a LIBOR plus some spread component. Got it, Michael. That that makes sense. But what about the the excess savings as well that was um, accumulated? Maybe it's been spent, but the excess savings that, that, that occurred during the pandemic. I know there was a big shift from services to goods, but do you think that's not relevant, or do you think it's been largely spent? I think we lost Michael Green. Sorry, I'm, Michael. We're losing. Did you guys lose me? Sorry, what's, uh, let's, yeah, we, we like haven't heard you for the last 60 seconds. Okay. We've lost your last This is a feedback loop. So when you have very, very low interest rates, and bond prices in particular, risk-free bond prices are extremely high, you're able to create cash through collateral and repo debt, right? So that's part of what's causing this component. The other thing, and Jim, uh, Dr. Jim highlighted this exceptionally well, and Michael Howe refers to it as well, and I think we're all on the same page on this, when you think about what is actually happening when rent goes higher or when interest rates go higher, you're talking about taking those cashed up individuals and slowly depleting their cash, either through higher purchasing costs, higher monthly expenses. And they naturally react to that by saying, well, I'm less confident. I'm going to spend less. I'm going to hold more in reserve because I have greater uncertainty. And that's the process that kicks it into reverse. It feels like it's already started. But for political reasons, central banks are now addressing last year's problem. Yeah. Got it. Absolutely. Right. So, hey, did you have a question or comment, Sohib? Yeah, just, just two questions. The first question is, um, for somebody anticipating a, a, a recession, how would the portfolio look like in terms of the makeup? Uh, and this would be for uh, Dr. Uh, Jim Walker. And then the second question for Michael uh, uh, Green, oh, 99 who mentioned that uh, they're more overweight energy, uh, these funds, than, than they were before. I just wanted to ask about the timeline because, you know, uh, uh, I mean, it still doesn't look like we've gotten to anywhere where we previously were. Uh, and he'd mentioned that, you know, we're underweight, uh, the tech and underweight, the, the renewable side of things. 
So just do those two questions uh, if possible, uh, and that's it for me. Thanks. So, so Jim, yeah. you wanted to be defensive, is that correct, Jim? Well, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Sohib. Um, I, I, I'm not the best portfolio constructor in uh, in, in this call, that's for sure. Uh, George, Michael, Michael uh, Howell as well. We're much better at, uh, at constructing these things than I. I, I, I just take cover, I'm afraid, when it's when I think things are bad. Uh, so I, I, I've got more cash than uh, I usually would have, although I've always got quite a bit of cash. I've got more gold, um, and I've got very, what would you say, specific companies that I'm very comfortable with that uh, um, produce nothing that people are excited about. Michael Green, you want to have a go at that? Um, yes. Yeah, so when I'm referring to the overweight versus underweight, a lot of people will point to the fact that the S&P is only 3% in energy and say, you know, well, therefore, they can't possibly be that overweight. Anytime you quote overweight or underweight, it's against those sorts of benchmarks, right? So, yes, energy is a much smaller percentage of the market than it was in 2008. And so that overweight is, you know, expressed against a smaller base. That is a legitimate criticism, although I would highlight that, you know, the more recessions that occur as we move forward from this point, and I know this is going to get, you know, tons of reaction and hate, but we are moving towards the end of fossil fuels. And so if you just think about it, and I think that's going to be slower than everybody else, you know, than people in, in the green space think, et cetera, no play on my name. But I just want to emphasize every recession that happens that pulls down that demand doesn't slow the progress that has actually been accelerated by this this dynamic of price increase. And so effectively, if you think about it as the terminal value of the oil and gas and energy space, every time we slow the economy in this manner, we're effectively shortening and reducing the value of that terminal value quite significantly. So on a purely rational basis, you should see these things trading at record low valuations if that's what, what is actually happening. To me, that's one of the most improperly priced areas of the market. It has the potential for people to try to reprice it against oil, but you've already seen oil prices go from negative $37 a barrel, admittedly on a single contract, the strip looked nothing like that, to $93 a barrel. What do you actually expect out of oil at this point? I mean, if you're looking for a revaluation of these securities, I just don't see how you're going to get it. Um, on the flip side of that, when I talk about the under the underweight in technology, you have absolutely seen, you know, a significant desire to rotate out of the tech space. I referred to this in a tweet earlier today. Somebody had the very good observation where they highlighted that ARC against um, the S&P looks an awful lot like the NASDAQ against the S&P back in 2000 and that the correction on a relative basis has largely occurred. I think that's crap. I think it's a misframing of the specifics, right? So ARC is not the NASDAQ, which is an index that can have new components and doesn't it doesn't matter per se for the index as an ongoing entity, whether there's flows. I think ARC has all those problems. But I think the underlying point is actually quite clear. Like we're not going back to shop at Macy's in physical form. We're not going back to shop at Walmart or Kroger's or any of these in the traditional framework. 
And the last point that I would make is tied back to the commodity cycle, like the entire world that we have existed in as investors is largely characterized by the explosive population growth of the 20th century. Individual people consume roughly the same number of calories, roughly the same number of grains, roughly the same, you know, and yes, I understand meat in a diet can change that, etc. But all of these things basically say that, that the character that we experienced from the 20th century with this unbelievable growth in population is not the world that we're looking at going forward. And a lot of the shortages that are developing, the high prices in oil, the high prices and shortages in fertilizer are actually setting up conditions that are going to hit the purchasing basket of the lower income, particularly the frontier markets and developing markets the most. And so I, I look at those and I just think we, we're facing a, a bizarre disaster of our own making um, that could carry significant overtones of true human tragedy. So I, I, like I'm... I think the one area where I might differ from, from Dr. Jim and perhaps Michael Howell, um, I don't know Michael's view on emerging markets, but I, I look at emerging markets and I think they're a disaster. As in, like, they may not even be markets in another decade. And, and, and Michael Green, I'm just curious, why, why, why do you say that? What's the, what's the thought behind that? Because it requires democratic and functioning institutions to maintain investable markets. And I, I would suggest that we're facing a situation in which that reverses itself, right? Argentina under Perón is not the market of the future. Right. Makes sense. Um, Michael Howell or Jim, any, uh, any thoughts? Or Michael K? Too many, if we get Michael K back up, we're going to have too many Michaels, but I hope he comes back up. Um, any, any thoughts? Uh, on guys, no, uh, no offense. I do want to keep listening, though. No, that's fine. That's, that's perfect. Thanks. Um, Michael Howell, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think I think a couple of things. I mean, one you were talking about, has there been any uh, any parallel with this COVID crisis before? And in actual fact, there, there, there was one, which was the, the Black Death. Uh, now, that may be a, 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 an inappropriate in some way comparison. But uh, in terms of the economic effects, it was it was not dissimilar. And what you saw coming out of the Black Death was actually uh, laws or edicts put in put in place by the uh, by the British Crown to stop wage inflation. Uh, and there were laws actually stating that if labourers uh, asked for higher wages, they'd be jailed. Uh, now that is an interesting parallel because it shows how this crisis can can worsen if you start to get wage inflation picking up. And I think the the takeaway that I would say in the last uh, maybe months to six weeks is it looks as if wage inflation is starting to uh, accelerate quite noticeably. It certainly is in the UK. And the evidence I've looked at for the US seems to suggest a very similar pattern. Uh, so that's that's really the problem. And that's how inflation begins to, uh, you know, to, to become embedded. So that's a that's a problem. It just labor shortages. I think, as Jim said, it's not so much numbers necessarily. It's the skill sets that are missing. Yeah, Michael, to your point, I mean, I just look at the really short term stuff, the data, Looking at some of the stuff from that out from that Hyman, you have the wage stuff is accelerating like crazy. You have Atlanta Fed wage tracker. You have food prices accelerating, um, housing prices accelerating, energy prices temporary rest, but they've been accelerating. I mean, everything Jim's saying and you're saying may be true, but I think it's a sequencing thing. It's I think it's a question of time horizons, and it goes back to the volatility question. So I mean, things may get worse before they get better, so to speak. So. 
I don't know, a lot of conflicting signals here. I think the one thing which is very clear, we really can't be sure of much of anything. Um, so, uh, or, or God, do you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to say I actually agree with all the speakers, and it's incredible for the more novice people on the phone today the amount of thought it takes when you're considering the implications on the implications on the implications and you're obviously going out. So George, I guess I wanted to ask um, with respect to let's, let's actually keep going down that timeline. I mean, the divergence between the halves at the top end of the K versus the bottom end of the K getting worse, wage inflation, commodity inflation, recessions, all hitting them much harder. And, 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 and what's absolutely true is that North Americans do have the number one problem they share in common uh, both north and south of the parallel, we're not having enough children, right? And so if, if and that would put uh, incredible pressure if, if that thesis continues to carry out. So my question would be, how do you play it? And then, of course, we can say cash, we can say gold. I mean, I think one of the very brilliant speakers has already said that. But I actually want to take it a step further. And I do have to um, tell you, I was highly intoxicated. I'd still be in my system. Wouldn't this all put incredible value in real assets so think about land and then think about geopolitical risk because if there is actually unrest who the hell is going to live in you know a place where they're actually going to do a real life you know squid games if you will thank you well i have a first shot at that i mean i guess my biggest question is depending on how much volatility uh and uncertainty emerges you could just see risk appetite diminishing and prices of everything going down. Anything that's not nailed down goes down in value. Now, beyond that, might real assets do better than some of these financial assets? Probably yes. But in the short run, I, to me, it's just I think you're looking at asset deflation. I don't know. Michael Howell or Jim, any thoughts? Yeah, uh, one thing I'd like to say is that uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I'm actually not the most pessimistic person on uh, the, 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 the call today because that's usually the case. But... Uh, uh, I think Michael Green's got me on that one with the, the, the comment about the emerging markets. Unfortunately, I think in certain places in Latin America, he's right. Uh, but yeah, the, the, I, 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 I think there's a real uh, issue going forward, especially for democracies, because the, 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 the one thing that uh, the haves and the have-nots have in common uh, is that they've all got one vote. Um, that some people might have a lot of money and others might not have very much money, but in democracies they've all got the same amount of votes. Um, and I think that's going to be that's going to be playing out for the next. Unlike the the recession view that I have, which I think happens quite quickly, uh, I think the political ramifications of all of this are going to be playing out for the next decade or two decades, and they're not going to be pleasant for the halves. And what does Jim? What does that also imply about? Uh the shift in income from uh, capital perhaps back to labor, where we've seen the opposite happen for the last couple of decades, and which is to a large extent why we're in the problem, the situation that we're in. Yeah, I, I mean, what, what worries me much more, uh, I've got to say, George, is the, the, the shift of uh, income from uh, capital to governments. And I think that's yeah. what's going to happen. Um, we're going to see governments taking money off people, no, I've got very little um, truck with people who have managed to accumulate huge amounts of, uh, of wealth through corruption, which a lot of businesses have done by influencing politics, etc., etc. 
Um, but when it comes to uh, blanket uh, increases in taxation to try and take wealth away from people and to, to rebalance the system, all you get is absolute chaos um, at the investment levels of the economy because it comes back down to this whole thing about not being able to see forward in terms of profitability. There's too much uncertainty. There's too much movement in the system. Um, and that just, in my view, creates the, the conditions for a very, very, very weak-looking global economy. I think that's an excellent point, Jim. Uh, Wabuff, good to see you. Do you have a question, Do you have a question Wabuff? Uh, hi, George. Um, and this is a, a great space. I, um, I, I wanted to build on something that Oil God said, which I, I am a big subscriber to in terms of theory. I, I, I don't think, and this is just sort of my perspective, perception, I could be wrong, but I, I wonder if we're applying the wrong model to this uh, current economy. I, I think oil gods onto something. This, this was a very unnatural period where the government suppressed consumption for a number of years, basically kind of a year and a half, maybe two years. And it's not just suppressing consumption in the United States, it's suppressing consumption in Canada, it's suppressing consumption in a lot of countries. And the parallels here maybe are different than what we've been used to in the past. That to me, the closest, um, and it's not exactly right, is maybe you know in prior years, in prior world wars, where you know leaving aside that they're not exact parallels, but you know domestic economies like in the U.S., which didn't feel the direct effects of the war in terms of damage to its productive capacity, but felt the effect of consumption being suppressed to support the war effort. And the same thing happened kind of in the World War One. In all those cases. The economies roared coming back out of those when those, that suppression was relieved because of just this pent-up demand. And, and I, I wonder if that's maybe what we're about to see here as, as various governments kind of loosen the controls. You know, I look at, I look at household net worth and balance sheets. They've, they haven't been this good in decades. I, I look at bank balance sheets. They've never been this good in decades. You know, tax policy could have been a bad thing if the Biden, you know, program had passed, but now we've retained the 2017 tax cuts, which keep corporate rates, investment tax rates, personal income tax rates at the same lower rates than they would have been. Um, and, and I look at, you know, real-time tax collections. They're booming. And it's not just capital gains. I mean, withheld income at source, the FICA, it's booming. Um, so I just, I just wonder if maybe we're, you know, the models we're trying to apply are giving us false signals just because it, you know, you had a sudden drop, a sudden snapback, and now we're sort of reverting to the mean where, you know, the, the numbers are just going to be noisy coming out of the economy for a little while. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, Wabuff, yeah, Wabuff I, I, think that, I, I think I asked that exact question about 15 minutes ago. I'm not sure if you were in the room. And, oh, sorry. And Jim, and Jim, Jim Walker said that, yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit complicated. We, we specifically referenced the, the post-war era. So it's, it is very confusing. We just don't know. Uh, and I think, Jim, you were saying the problem is going to be you see this uncertainty continuing for a while. Is that, is that right, Jim? Well, that, that, that's it. Um, and and I, I really respect that question because I think it's very important that we understand that there's so many things that are moving and that are different uh, in so many ways. But that's the problem. It's the, the, the degree of, of movement, both in relative prices and in the uh, the behavioural changes that have taken place and then the demand changes that have taken place and in the supply changes that have taken place. And what they all add up to is that we have absolutely no clue where we're going. 
except that uncertainty is rising. And when that's the case, investment falls. Yep. No, that's a great point, Jim. All right. We're going to do one more question. Jim, you were, I don't know if you're glutton for punishment. You feel you have any sense of obligation. You're actually enjoying yourself. Uh, but at any rate, <laughs> notice we've gone two and a half hours and these, these rooms can go on forever if we don't put an end to it. So <laughs> we're, we're going to take one more question from country, country late cap, and then we're going to close the room. So country late cap, uh, what, what's up? Good to see you. Hey, hey George. Good afternoon. Thanks for uh, doing this space. I really enjoy the, uh, the content and everyone's uh, insights. Curious your view or, or any of your other co-hosts view on the fed. I find it just interesting. And I guess it's, Somewhat understandable what we're already talking about, the potential for easing when we even haven't even had our first hike yet. But given um, given asset price today and inflation broadly, part of it, part of our inflation phenomenon seems supply chain driven. But a lot of it also, George, seems demand driven. And don't you think the Fed almost has to break the risk asset market in order to stop inflation just simply because of the wealth effect, whether it's crypto, whether it's equities, unless risk markets break, it seems very difficult to see this inflation phenomenon normalizing it. I know, I know again, part of this is supply driven, but I think a lot is demand. Yeah, no, no country like, yeah, we, we, I don't know how long you've been in the room, but we've discussed this already. Yes. uh, You need to have, you need to have a recession. Jim, Jim, Jim said it best. Like without a without a recession, inflation is going to keep going up. So yes, I think you need you need to have a recession. You need to break risk assets, um, which is why I come out being negative on equities because you know either you're going to get the recession, the earnings estimates are all wrong, or if they if they're pussies about it and they don't do the right thing, you're just going to see ever escalating inflation rates so no totally completely agree all right listen we can go forever I, it's it's <laughs> jim i have to thank you i hope you enjoyed yourself and by the way everyone should give a big round of applause to jim he didn't even know how to use twitter spaces <laughs> before this morning and jim don't worry i didn't know either and michael how i want to thank you for being in the room and michael green and and, and everybody oh god uh, detroit bad boy from the hood so hey this is unbelievable i continue to think these are the best rooms on twitter and I hope all of you uh, continue to come back to these rooms. And we're all just trying to figure this out together. Nobody has any of the answers. Uh, it's just a lot of uncertainty, as Jim was saying. So I bid you all the rest of a good day and look forward to seeing you in our next room. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Many thanks, George. Cheers. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, bye.